Hey. Hey, buddy. How's it going? Good to see you. I'm surprised I wasn't banned. Yeah. Well, the first <laughs> hour got had huge buffering all over the world um, for some reason. So we've never had that before. But you're looking crisp and clear and sound great. Oh, good. Happy St. Patrick's Day, by the way. Yeah, you too. And it's been a few months, at least, since we last spoke. So, because yeah, I was thrown, pe- off, uh, thrown off YouTube since then, 15 years worth of work. <laughs> I know. Are you going to go and lobby outside of the offices in Ireland? Well, I can't travel because of Corona. Oh. Well, so, um, do, you have yeah, any plans <laughs> up, do you have any plans up your sleeve? Well, I'm going to do that as soon as it's a, a possibility, but it's harder for me to travel now because I had another kid. So yeah. I don't know. I don't think I want to go back on YouTube. They're just going to ban me again. So I'm using something called PeerTube now. So um, building that back up and and hopefully just going on other shows will will help build that channel. It's Stockholm Syndrome to keep going back to the same people and getting kicked off over and over again. So I gave up on Twitter. I gave up on YouTube. Uh, just gonna have to start building up third-party platforms. I made something for you. What did you make? I don't know if we'll get through all this today, but um, oh! another one of my little nifty maps. Wow, <laughs> there's well, a lot more that I've uncovered since uh, the last map. Uh, I don't think we can crush all this in 30 minutes, but I just want people to know I got a lot of dirt on the Wexners and Bronfmans. That's uh, pretty eye-opening. Because we're on Patreon, you can say what the hell you want. We can take no, out. You can't. No? I've been banned. I've been banned on Patreon no! too. And no! They will. I had to use an alternative email just to log in. They oh wouldn't let me. <laughs> Trust me, you you cannot. They are just as bad or worse. Really? They banned me before YouTube. Yeah, I got banned on Patreon July second, the day Maxwell was arrested. They banned my Patreon, and everyone was coming to see what I had to say about her getting arrested. She was arrested where I said she was going to be arrested, and I didn't even get to gloat because they raised my <laughs> Patreon. <laughs> so where do you want to start tonight, then? Well, um, we can go over a little bit of Maxwell stuff, and then uh, you can choose Wexner or Bronfman. That's uh, Wexner. All right, we'll do Wexner, then. I was hoping you'd say that. They're both worthy of a... A smackdown and it ends up overlapping again anyway but yeah i i don't know if you i'm sure i do know you've seen the daily mail and other articles about maxwell's family her brother older brother in particular whining yes, <laughs> how she's yeah. a victim yeah now yes they made a few mistakes in the write-up uh he went on good morning america which is just a abysmal talk show level news and um just sat up there and lied and uh a couple things i wanted to point out was that i think are crucial is one they lied about the timeline of when maxwell and epstein met and uh we know that because i you interviewed ari bin menashe who 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 met both of them and introduced them to douglas lease and tried to get him the arms trade they weren't very good at it but all that happened in the 80s because he was in jail in 89 you know what happened before that and they've got the timeline placing uh her and and his relationship way after that so they lied about the timeline the other thing that was quite revealing is they're playing this oh she was just a victim and she got married and moved on and 
you know, Epstein was the monster and the, you can kind of tell what her defense is going to be in July. These morons have re revealed what they're going to do. And it's that, well, it was all Epstein. And because he died or murdered, you're taking it all out on Ghislaine. And so they're making her stay in jail extra rough. And they're trying to pin it all on her because they don't have Epstein anymore. Yeah, well, if, if you're in a criminal conspiracy, you know, if you've been partners in crime with someone, when you all get arrested, obviously you don't want to point the finger at the other person. But if that person dies, then it's the easiest legal strategy in the world is to blame <laughs> the deceased. Right. Well, it's also, it just flies in the face of every single testimony from every single victim that's testified or written or said anything before epstein was arrested the second time and before he was dead everyone said that glenn maxwell was worse that she was recruiting the noobles ugh, and was engaged in rape and grooming and you know yada 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 so to blame this on epstein and say oh well they're dumping it on her because they don't have him anymore it just goes against it's contrary to all of the evidence it's not like they all switched after he died Way before that, they said, yeah, it's both of them, and she's worse. Not one person said Epstein was worse than Maxwell. Actually, she's scarier than he is. So that that's just not going to work as a defense if that's what they're going with. But it doesn't yeah, it's, surprise me. It's contrary me. to the truth, but it's still a, a clever legal strategy. Because look at some of the survivors who became, well, allegedly became procurers and the legal quagmire that creates then for a prosecutor. So she's obviously trying to put herself in that category. Well, they always blame the victims too. It's, oh, they're just targeting me. And now she's a victim, right? Lots of hand waving and, and it's just, it's disgusting. There's no remorse. She's not, oh, I'm sorry that I was with them and took any part in this at all. And trying to act ignorant, like, oh, I didn't know he was doing all that. And, Oh, we raped those kids a long time ago. I've moved on and got a new husband or a husband <laughs> secretly. Uh, it's just nasty. And it also revealed how she had been in France and what date she was in the UK because she took a photograph in June of uh, 2019. So uh, we knew that too. She had also been in Japan that year before that. Uh, not sure what she was doing over here, but every detail matters. But that's a pathetic defense. I mean, it's good to wrap them all up, but uh, that's not going to work. And the judges in these cases are, because uh, you got uh, multiple things going on. You've got Maxwell's case itself, and then you've got some of the financial scandals and separate cases with Deutsche Bank and others going on still with Epstein. So it's going to be an exciting summer seeing all this roll out. Assuming yeah. everyone survives. <laughs> Brunel's in jail too. We got to make sure he survives. <laughs> So we've got the Ian Maxwell thing and we've got Glenn Maxwell. So a legal team would advise the entire family not to do any pretrial publicity. In terms of expressing remorse, that would be an admission of guilt. But if she is found guilty, which I believe she will be found guilty, probably a, a plea bargain to avoid a trial, she had better show some remorse then because the, the judge is someone who can just take the rest of your life away from you. So... It's going to be interesting to see how she does behave at the sentencing hearing. Now, mm -hmm. we have to wonder why on earth is Ian Maxwell speaking out then if a legal team would say pre all pre-trial publicity is bad publicity because all it takes is prosecutors to get one sentence 
said in the wrong way and they could use it against you at, at trial. Do you think that because the pre-trial publicity is so negative, there's just no chance in hell of it of it of it being improved? They've got nothing to lose by Ian speaking out at this point. Maybe, but I also think and maybe Eric Weinstein would agree with this. These people are so arrogant and used to getting their way. Uh, you saw the Andrew interview, right? This is uh, the level these people operate on. They think, well, if I whine and complain and it'll just work, it always has. And that just isn't the way it works. <laughs> you know, this time, you can't just blackmail or bribe your way through the judge and say, and she's being mistreated and a flashlight shown in her face every 15 minutes. That is not true. I mean, that'd be a burden on the cops too. <laughs> like 15 minutes. It's baloney. I mean, they're just complaining, being woe is me, and she's the victim. And it might be a, a kind of a dog whistle to say, hey, all of you that she's got dirt on, uh, you need to be making her life a little bit more comfortable. But I don't think that's going to work. The crimes are too great and too public, and it's way easier to throw them under the bus than uh, it is to side with them. At least for on that level. Now, going up to the people who really sponsored the, all of these rings and things, the Wexners and the Bronfens, like those are the ones that I'd rather be in jail. And I just, I wish that it would go up that high, but I don't see it going up. I see it going sideways at best. But you know, at least we got some of them in prison, and uh, she could tell on her underlings, and she could. Uh, you know, tell on some of the other groomers and who, whatever she can give up in her plea bargain. But I don't see her giving up the prince. I don't definitely don't see her turning on Wexner. Uh, otherwise, she wouldn't be alive. So the Clintons then, with the change of the presidency, uh, going back to the, you know, associates of the Clinton crime family, do you think she could get some play through the legal system because of the changing of the presidency? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, you know, and, and that reminds me, Hillary Clinton, because we all know Bill was on Epstein's islands and planes, but Hillary Clinton accepted uh, millions in donations from Claire Bronfman from the Nexium cult, the one that was branding women like they were cattle. Uh, and now Claire Bronfman's pleaded guilty to her role, or at least part of her role in that cult with Keith Rainier. And he's in prison too. So a lot of them went to jail last year, which is great. Uh, as far as the, the Biden-Harris regime, you know, doing some favors, they'd like to, uh, and they'll protect themselves. You know, it's not going to go back to the Clintons. I mean, look at all the crimes the Clintons have done and gotten away with. I mean, they've murdered people. But um, how are they going to get it off of Maxwell? I just don't see. I, it's not worth it, the stain you'd get in the public. Uh, from that, although these people seem to be pretty shameless, so <laughs> nothing's out of the realm of possibilities. But what if the liability presented even more shame of what she could disclose about the Clintons? And look what you've previously said on other interviews on my channel about the money that Epstein gave the Clintons and his work with the Clinton Foundation. All that could, mm -hmm. you know. Well, will it come out or will they classify it and make it closed doors and I don't know. Um, but yeah, she definitely has the information. Epstein certainly did. And she knows plenty on Bill. So, but the thing is, look at all the info that's already available 
with Frank Gustra and others and mob ties to the Clintons and murders they've been involved in. And, and it doesn't seem to matter, right? We already have enough dirt without Maxwell to put those, the, all the Clintons in jail for a very long time. And it just doesn't seem to come out. Uh, some of the nastiest things these people are involved in were never brought up even during a presidential race, which, which Hillary Clinton was in twice. Uh, another guy that's involved in this is John McCain, and he was in the presidential race, and they never brought up uh, his nastiest prior crimes. They had convictions and everything. So the media seems completely uninterested. What's going to push this is people like you and alt media saying you cannot ignore this and this story the public wants it and so this is very interesting we never really had this situation where online media etc has made something that ought to be a massive story remain a massive story because we're people like us not continually reminding people and digging up more and more of the financial crimes and the sexual proclivities of these deranged people then uh it would be forgotten because the media is they're not touching it and the papers are doing it now, but it's almost entirely online. If you notice that the three letter networks refused to do stories. They didn't want to embarrass the Royals. They had the goods on Epstein for a long time and just decided not to get into it. And some of the things I'm going to share with you tonight about Wexner it's in press buried deep down there in this article or that in business news and so on. But in, you know, no one is compiling this all together and giving the story to the public like they ought to be not on television anyway, but we can do it. you got a question here in the chat from Matthew Steeples, who's one of our guests coming on later on. My question is, why do you think the alleged underage girl trafficker, Ghislaine Maxwell attended the Cash and Rocket Rally from London to Monte Carlo beginning 13th of June 2019, given the founder, Julie Brangstrup, is supposedly fundraising to stop the trafficking of women. How was she approved to attend this event, especially given alleged victim Maria Farmer's deposition was submitted on the 16th of April 2019? Well, sadly, a lot of the people that are supposed to be policing these things are doing the opposite. I mean, you saw Jeffrey Epstein donating to uh, to criminal um, to anti-criminal and corruption at uh, Harvard and other places and donating to police in Florida. I was like, why are you helping the police? I'm like, you're not. It's a bribe. Uh, and that's what they were doing. She also likes to ingrain herself in these things, she went to the UN many times on the pretext of her Tamar Oceans charity, but that also gets her door in to rub elbows with these all all these uh, prominent, powerful people because they target them for blackmail, and that's sort of what her role is: get in under whatever pretext, rub elbows, get to dinner parties, find the weak ones, and start chipping away at them with honey traps and so on. I mean, that was her job. So it's all part of the camouflage. Mm-hmm. Keep your enemies closer. So Wexner's a victim as well. He gets pickpocketed by Epstein. Yeah, he says, but man, no, those two are working together. Now, I know uh, we've been over, I think we did Peter Nygaard last time. That actually was going to, it all comes together. But uh, we talked before, 
you know, granting him a house, not a house, like a former school that became a giant mansion in New York for a dollar and Wexner's ties. But Wexner and his wife and Epstein's funds would donate in circles to each other. And they did a lot of it through Ohio State University. And so I wanted to bring up, I'll, I'll, I'll go through this map a little bit. Have you heard of the Lincoln Project? No. Uh, they so the Lincoln Project was this sort of never Trumper organization. And last month, uh, one of their the prominent heads of the Lincoln Project was whose name John Weaver was caught uh, sexting fourteen year olds and doing a sort of casting couch bizarre um, solicitation of his own employees where he said things like uh, on your walk, think about worshiping a big cock and having yours worshiped until you're rimmed until you beg mm. things like this to kids, by the way. And he's mm. in DM rooms on Twitter. Uh, Twitter allows pedophilia. I mean, they've openly defended it many, many times. And so they have these like giant rooms on there of private messaging where they Engage in these kind of shenanigans. But anyway, here's a guy working for the Lincoln Project who is soliciting young boys as well as people his own age. That's the shocker. Oh, some people your age only, right? <laughs> he was an aide for John McCain and John Kasich. And we'll just put John McCain on the side for a second because that's going to lead back to the Bronfman's and Wexner, but John Kasich's a very interesting. Uh, he was the governor of Ohio and he got a lot of money from both Epstein and Wexner, as well as some other prominent families. And he is the one that uh, actually appointed Abigail Wexner to the board of trustees of Ohio State University, um, which is an important place because this is... Um, one of the places where they'd launder a lot of money. So for example, uh, he appoints her to the board of trustees and then Wexner gives a million dollars in donations uh, as did the Schottenstein family uh, who are also deeply involved with Wexner and Ohio State University. They named a football complex after Wexner. But one of the things that happened there is uh, C-O-U-Q Foundation. So I don't know if you pronounce that cock or coke or what, but it was owned by Jeffrey Epstein. And they gave $2.5 million to OSU. Uh, and then he had another uh, company called the Financial Trust um, Company Incorporated. What a generic name, right? And that also added money to Ohio State. And then they named they named a, uh, a football complex after Wexner and then Wexner himself uh, added money to that through, he gave um, through the Wexner, no Abigail Wexner's family charity fund. And they named them after themselves. But then what happens is uh, Epstein gave, gave 46.6, $5 million to YLK charitable fund, which is run by Abigail Wexner, who then 33 million was transferred to the Wexner family charitable fund, who then gave 10 million back to Epstein's Coke uh, foundation. So 
it's tax evasion and money laundering and they're using a school as sort of a medium like okay they both donate to the school a little bit and then they all donate to each other in a triangle um but at the athletic center uh it was richard strauss and i don't know if people in the uk really heard about this case but it was kind of a big deal in the us he was the medical doctor and this is gonna make people throw up in their mouth a little bit they called him dr jelly paul he molested and sexually abused over 177 athletes um fondling their balls and hand jobbing unnecessarily and um, anal exams and completely unnecessary. And the thing is, obviously, 177 people, they all complained. They complained to the other doctors. They complained to the school. The school was aware. And this went on from 1979 until about 1996. Hundreds of students molested by this man. There's a little bit of good news, though. About uh, eight months ago, eight, nine months ago, uh, well, it was May 3rd, 2020, so whatever that was. They won a lawsuit, and uh, Ohio State is now having to pay $49.1 million to the victims. And then a second lawsuit was issued in August of last year by 11 more victims. Pretty disgusting what happened to these in particular, and they're suing for another $10 million. So the school is having to shell out some money to the victims, but uh, Dr. Jiggly Paul or Jelly Paul committed suicide in 2005, but he's working at the athletic center built by Epstein and Wexner, uh, both Wexners, by the way, Abigail and Les Wexner, who are doing illegal money laundering through their charities and uh, and foundations, all of which were then used again in other bribery schemes with uh, local police and so on. It's really disgusting. Now, I, if I go too fast, you can slow me down. But I mentioned the uh, Schottenstein family, which would probably be the second richest family in Ohio after the Wexners. These are an interesting bunch uh, of guys as well. Um, there's a lot of them, but we'll, we'll we'll start with Jay. And we don't have to cover all this in one shot. But um, Jay Schottenstein is who happens to sell Israel bonds in Columbus. He's... The, the chairman for selling Israeli bonds. This is important because, as you know, this whole thing was an Israeli intelligence operation. Maxwell's father was an asset for Israeli intelligence and Israeli military intelligence um, and got into media. So, and we know they, through the Wexner Foundation, which Epstein was a trustee of, they donated money to Ehud Barak. And we've gone over that before. Well, it turns out that Schottenstein also gave $157,000 to Benjamin Netanyahu, who's now the current prime minister of Israel. And he was a huge follower of uh, Rabbi uh, Yoshi Yahu Pinto, who he bought an $11 million house for. It's like uh, the rabbi's own Wexner, right? $11 million house. He's got all these businesses in Israel. This is an American, but he has all these businesses in Israel. He's floating the house for uh, Rabbi Pinto, who is convicted of bribery and obstruction of justice and went to jail for a year. Uh, but then they let him out. And he also donated a million dollars to John Kasich, 
where I just said John Kasich's aide is John Weaver, who's the one 16, 14 year old boys. His uh, son, uh, Jonathan Schotenstein, is a hooker loving drug addict gambler who borrows money from the mafia. And you can actually type that into Google Schotenstein hooker loving drug addict gambler who borrows money from the mafia and get stories of that exact title. <laughs> and that story is as bad as it sounds. And so <laughs> then we, but it goes deeper. Rabbi Pinto's translator, his name is Ben Zion Suki, uh, who made, one, he had an illegal hotel in New York, which was essentially a brothel using Airbnb as a front to, you know, move Johns in and out with other hookers. And he got caught. I'm sorry, this isn't funny, but uh, almost a million dollars worth of illegal bootleg porn um, from this is back when it was on DVDs and stuff. And he was uh, pirating pornography of the... Um, well, like two girls, one cup variety level of nasty uh, all over New York City. And so that and this is the translator for a rabbi. So because the rabbi doesn't even speak English, so they, they really he owns the, the um, Ben Zion Suki uh, Cohen's property with the rabbi's wife. That's the two of them both ran the hotel where all these whores are going in and out of. Uh, so. The white collar crime and pedophilia always seems to pair up with this crowd over and over again. Then you've got Robert H. Schotenstein, uh, who's on the board of L Brands, owned by Wexner. <laughs> and he is the Ohio State University uh, Foundation board. He's on that. He's on. He's also who was a trustee for Ohio State from 2005 to 2014 and guess who replaced them mm. abigail wexner <laughs> oh. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up and then oh. uh th so he moved he was on the osu uh board from for two years and then he's also on the united uh jewish appeal young leadership now united jewish appeal has changed its name um Oh, he's also on the Wexner Center Foundation board with Epstein. <laughs> okay, or was. <laughs> Epstein's not on there anymore. Um, United Jewish Appeal, um, United Israel Appeal, The, of course, the chairman's for that is called the uh, Jewish Foundation or something now, but is um, Edgar Bronfman, which is who whose daughter was involved in the Nexium cult and who's the one that through uh, Joseph B. Tomei was doing that the shenanigans with Joe's trading minerals with Jeffrey Epstein and Bear Stearns. And we went over that uh, already, but like, I'm just reminding people it ties into a big circle. Now his father, Samuel Brothman is who um, he's the co-founder of United liquor, which was Kemper Marley and James Hensley, who's the father-in-law of John McCain whose aide was John Weaver of the Lincoln Project. Mm. And John McCain was also tied into another uh, scandal, also named after Abe Lincoln, called the Lincoln Savings and Loans Affair. You probably uh, could speak to this too, because I know you're into the finance and we're a tradester. Um, do you remember the Keaton Five scandal from the 80s? Yep. 
absolutely huge SNL scandal. So yeah. for millennials, there was it was John McCain and four Democrats um, out of Arizona. McCain was out of Arizona. He was out of Arizona, and then there was Donald Keating uh, was out of Arizona. Sorry, as well. Keating's out of Arizona. So Charles Keaton Jr. Yeah. was so. Well, let's explain to everyone else. There was. He basically, Charles Keaton was involved in this SNL scandal as well as this massive uh, real estate gambit that I won't have time to explain, but we'll do it in a minute. And he basically bought five senators, John McCain and four other goobers. There was uh, Alan Creston. And um, here, I'll look at my map here. I'll pull it up. Uh, Dennis uh, Contesini, Donald Regal, John Glenn, obviously, and Alan Crafton. So I couldn't remember Alan's name. But um, this was a major like O.J. Simpson level event in the 80s for the 90s kids like O.J. Simpson was the trial of the century. It was on all day, every day. Um, and it was covering up the scandal for John McCain. But John McCain was also being financed uh, from United Liquors, from his father-in-law, who was just the management arm for the company set up by the Bronfman family that made its fortune uh selling illegal liquor before that and they also sponsored uh mccain's father who helped cover up the attack on the uss liberty when the israelis uh, tried to blow up on a, a united states ship and murdered u.s sailors and then tried to pin the blame on egypt and they got caught and they were given a week to do the entire investigation mccain's father covered up the whole thing and then uh they basically married into this uh Bronfman family money where McCain was covered and he got money from uh Fice Semington, but uh who is also out of Arizona. So this is the there McCain is to Arizona what the Clintons are to Arkansas, right? That is their <laughs> their own syndicate, their own mafia. That's not an exaggeration, like it's that bad. Kemper Marley, who was the co-owner with Bronfman, um, was actually involved in a murder case. They murdered a journalist, Don Bowles. Uh and oh, yeah. you know this. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you know. I know. I, uh, I, I know. A hitman in prison told me this story. Oh, really? Well, tell me what you heard. Yeah. I'll tell you what I know. <laughs> well, I'll I'll have to dig it out for you because I think we've 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 documented it somewhere. The guy's dead now. Yeah. Um, we have run out of time this evening. We've got the next guest about to come on. Our thirty minute oh, slot. They blew him over. up in his car, and you... uh, John Admonson and Max Dulop were the two that did it, and one yeah. of them confessed. They got paid fifty grand each. I'd really like to hear what you know about it and compare notes because I got some some pretty deep dirt on this too. Yeah, I know a lot and, about and this. Time, gonna, of course, the timer comes out, leaving people on a cliffhanger. But I wasn't well, on can, purpose. Can we do part? <laughs> you want to do part two next week? I'd love to because we got again into Rabbi Herbert Freeman and okay. and all this other stuff. It's um. Come back next week then, and work for now. Where can people support you? What's left? What's, what's left? left? <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, it's sad. What I'm doing is I have a uh, I have a backup YouTube channel purely for notifications, which I gave to Ash. So I guess that'll be a link somewhere. Uh, I'd be I'd be happy if you'd put that on your regular YouTube, yeah. not behind uh, Patreon, so people can find it. I can't say anything. So what I do is I I, I lost about eighty one thousand followers this time. Sucks. And so what I do is I sign in on the YouTube, I start an entropy, and I say, hey, everybody, we're about to stream about Smurfs and unicorns or whatever, you know, nonsense over here. And then I give them a link to this thing called PeerTube. 
uh, which is where it allows you to live stream and it's censorship free. It's decentralized. It's like BitChute, except you can live stream or, or Odyssey. So I'm over there. That's vid, like video, vid.ancreport.com. And then I still have my web, my own website for now. Uh, they have attacked that before too. That's just ancreport.com. ANC stands for anti-neocon. So, um, and we've got the Epstein maps. Uh, did you get yours framed or is it still? It's still at the framers because of the lockdown. It's been closed, the framers. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if I have one right within arm's reach, but uh, this, like this little map that I was flat, this is nothing. Like this is like one block of, of the big map. Uh, yeah, this needs fantastic. to be added to it. Yeah. But um, the way people can support me, so instead of just asking for donations or memberships, uh, why not uh, get a map with your donation? So that's available in the shop, and I think there's a link there. And um, they're coming out timely now. I've got three different people mailing them in different countries. So it was a headache at first, but we're getting that out. And that's the way people can support me and get a nice big crime map because – Without visuals, this stuff is almost possible to get your head around. It's uh, a lot of names, a lot of businesses, a lot of crimes. And with the map, you can see it. And I only put on there those that are already convicted or formally accused. That map would have been 10 times bigger if we just put, well, you know, but, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it would have been a lot bigger. But um, I'd love to come back on. I appreciate any time I can come on your show and uh appreciate you staying up it. and doing this and i look forward to speaking to you next week then ryan and i urge people to go down and support you and click on the links thank you so much and everybody in chat hello and uh if you have any questions just uh just send them our way because i got i can i can just diary of the mouth this stuff for hours and hours there's so much with wexner it's it'll just it makes your head spin you're like why why can't just one person you know, Tucker Carlson or somebody uh, in, you know, America or the UK just like tell you these things. They're all, it's all spread out in news somewhere, this piece there, this piece there. And it's like we got to do their job for them and not even getting paid. <laughs> right. I'm going to have to move on to the next guest. Cheers, Ryan. Take care. Peace. My friend. Thank you very much. Thank you again. Cheers. All right. Always fascinating. I have just put in the finishing touches to my book, Who Killed Epstein, Prince Andrew or Bill Clinton. And just yesterday or the day before I was going over previous interviews with Ryan. And just to look at it, to not be on a lot, uh, an interview and actually interviewing the person so you can see it with a clear perspective, the, the, the amount of historical knowledge he has is absolutely mind-blowing. Right, so we're going to Venezuelan prison next. Let me just um, scroll through the people to find Andres. Okay, bear with me. Looking for Andres Figueredo. We've got three pages of peeps. Andres, Chris. Okay. Oh, found him. He's right here. Inviting him in. And as usual, huge thank you to all the people supporting what we're doing. Huge thank you.
to the moderators, Chris and Fred, who just work hours and hours, you know, helping us do this stuff consistently as well. Okay, I just saw Andres. Where is he? Where is he going? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Hey, Sean, how's everything? Yeah, things are going really good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining us. I had um, one podcast guest, Natalie Welch. Mm-hmm. She was a coke trafficker, and she ended up going into this prison in Venezuela. And as she arrived, she saw these armed men on the roof, and she thought they were the guards. <laughs> yeah. Her perception rapidly changed. Is she the one who wrote the book? Yeah, we have just republished her book. It's Escape from Venezuela's Deadliest Prison. It's available in all three formats on Amazon right now worldwide. And we've got something big going on behind the scenes. I don't know if she's announced it yet, but in terms of television. So we can't wait to announce that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah so you were in the prison for how how long? Well, for, well I, w- I was never in prison uh, as, a, as an inmate, and I was in uh, as a visitor. I spent... Yeah, the, producing the, a documentary. Mm-hmm, yeah, like I spent almost 10 years of my life between the moment that I decided to start doing the documentary, and when we released it, the first release was in, in, in Holland, in, in Amsterdam, uh, in the ITFA International Documentary Film Festival in 2019. And till that point, it was, you know, the first couple of years, it was just me being able to get into that system because, well, I don't know if your, your viewers know, but uh, as you said, like in Venezuela, we have around 36 prison, give or take, like sometimes they destroy them and don't build new ones. But out of the 36, at least 10 that I visited, I visited more than 10, uh, were under the control of the inmates. That means like no guards inside only guards in the perimeter and that's like the main question that's always asked is like, oh why don't why don't they just leave it's like because there's armed guards outside so essentially they become like criminal parallel states in which inmates rule the the prisons from the inside with weapons anywhere from ak-47s to grenades to i saw like these tommy guns of the old school gangster movies like golden you know you would just see all this and then kids running around, guys selling, like, if you see the documentary, there's a guy that, that, that was really hard to, to film some of these scenes because, if it, like, at the beginning, it was like, how do I get to tell a human story within this system in which, you know, it's very hard for you to gain trust and for you to show, you know, like, you, it's, it's not that hard to do, well, not, 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 not that it's not hard, but it's easier to do, like, a documentary with a long lens and filming from here, but to actually get into the lives and tell the stories of these people and, and try to understand, you know, you know, there, there are obviously there are very bad people in this place, but there's also victims of the society and the circumstances that Venezuela has gone through. And you seeing the nuances and the different colors is kind of what I tried to do in this documentary is to show that there's a whole gamma of, of different personalities from the person who reforms himself through either the Bible or through music to the guy who says he's never going to change. And if he leaves, he's going to continue to commit the same crimes and do the same stuff. So it was at, at the beginning, it was like, how do I infiltrate or how do I get to a point of trust with the inmates that they will allow me to to film this and and for me to be you know as a documentarian with my camera around without them noticing that you know well not no, not noticing but like they felt comfortable with me around and so that's why it took me 10 years and also after recording over 400 hours of material to edit that into an hour and a half documentary was almost oh, you cannot believe how hard it was 
Um, so that was part of the, the journey till, till we got to now. Did you have to pay the gang members to let you in and protect you? No. What we did was we, the, the way that we started going in was that we would go through the uh, evangelical uh, system because the, the, the Roman Catholic Church, which is like the, the main religion in, in Venezuela, is not allowed into the prisons. And so like these evangelical pastors that do the events of, of preaching and whatnot would go in and I would start by filming the baptisms and filming the church events and stuff like that. And obviously, you know, through that, you would go, you would start getting in, getting in. And eventually what I did was, I think that the, what ended up giving me the most trust was that I would talk to them as I'm talking to you. Like I had no, none of this like preconception. I'd like, I, I honestly wanted to understand, you know, when, whenever was I going to have that possibility to sit to a person from such a different uh, world than me and, and, and to be able to get that perspective and to bounce that. And I think, you know, when, when you come from, from a different world and you open yourself to the experiences or the knowledge, even though, you know, that they might be people that committed many crimes, but they have knowledge for you, for you to understand and to understand what was going on in Venezuelan society in general. How did this happen? How did, how were they able to take control of the prisons? How is it that they're ruling? They, they created their own, uh, state and, and rule of law within within the, the community and I studied political economics and, and for me that was super interesting how they had their own currency not not their own currency system but like they would take bolivares out of circulation before the government took them out of circulation so like you couldn't pay inside the prison with certain banknotes that the government was issuing they would say no no we don't accept these here because they're they're not worth anything and so th there would be other currency systems. And so like obviously trying to understand all of that with, within also the philosophical dilemmas that, that, that you can have presented when you see, you know, a guy that goes into prison and he has a kid while he's in prison. And then this little kid comes to visit him and sees the dad with an AK-47 or a grenade and then with drugs all over the place. And, you know, with the gold and the, and the motorcycles inside the prison, that's obviously going to create a pattern in the mind of this kid. And then how do you then judge that individual that, that for me was a very tough question you know how do you judge the individual based on you know a single crime he commits if you don't understand a life an entire life of going through the system of being influenced this way and absorbing like you're four years old five years old six years old going into this and absorbing this like a sponge something has to stick to you and and eventually that's gonna be a, a huge issue for society and that that was kind of what i was trying to understand is like how do we change this because a lot of of people in my family, even myself, like we've, we've been victims of, of the amount of, of criminalization that Venezuelan society has gone through in the past 20 years. I was kidnapped in, in 2011 by inmates of a prison that I had visited, not connected. I wasn't in the prison at the time, but they couldn't believe that they turned around while I was kidnapped and they were like, uh, yeah, this is my business and I'm a businessman and this is what I do. But, but you know, uh, and I've even gone to prison for my business. And I asked them, oh yeah, you've been to prison. What prison? And he told me El Roleo. And I was like, oh, I've been to El Roleo. And he turns around. He's like, what are you, a narc? Like, who are you? He's like, no, no, like I'm doing this documentary and I'm doing all this work. And I think that that type of, you know, being clear in, in my communications is also what allowed me for 10 years. You know, I look like a gringo, like an American. I go to Venezuela and I don't look like, like a Venezuelan. And especially in a prison, I would stand out like that. But that that allowed me to also be the way that I am and and start build, bringing things of, of value to the to the prison community like we brought basketball games baseball games we eventually even built a music studio inside the, mu the music prison uh, or sorry inside the prison and we made a hip-hop album with a group of, of convicts and we fit, we made the entire album inside we released it on spotify last year we're making the new album right now because out of the like this was like a like a group of like a gang but we were trying to use music as a as a means to transform 
you know, the, the, the time spent doing nothing or the time spent like thinking about other things would turn it, no, turn it into music, turn it into a song, turn, find music as a means of expression. And eventually all of, most of these guys left prison and they are now doing music in the studios that we have in Caracas. And so it, it created like, even if it was five people, it's five people, 10 people that are no, their path would have been completely different had initiatives like this not happened. But society doesn't really pay attention to any of this because once once they go behind a wall, especially in Venezuela, when we have so many problems, it's like, why are we going to even fixate ourselves or why are we going to think about the problems with prisoners when we have so much poverty in our streets, when we have people hunger stricken, when we have you know a, a health crisis, when we have an economic crisis, why are we even going to pay attention to prisoners? But eventually these places become universities of crime. And if more like if, if that happens in places where, where there's, you know, supposed, you know, structure like the US or European prisons, imagine in a, in a place where the one who rules prison is the one who has, you know, the most criminal rule of law. So obviously, that was like, a very important aspect for me to for, for me to understand Venezuelan society. And one of the main issues that's going to happen because this, this is a cancer that our country has. And the way is not you know, and if you see the documentary, you see how the government started, this got out of hand and the government started doing systematic uh, interventions in which they would send military armed forces using the same weapons that they trafficked into the prisons to shoot at each other, which is the, the insane thing. It's like these guards are letting weapons in that they are then going to shoot back at them just because of the quick profit making. And so obviously that 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 whole system is like, all right, what, what are you going to do? Are you going to keep going until what you drop bombs on all of them? And then what, what happens to the supposedly left wing government that is in, in favor of human rights? What are you doing then? How, how do you justify human rights when you're when, when things get so out of hand that people that haven't been sentenced are being killed by armed guards or by the inmates themselves? So you've touched on numerous themes on this channel, Dan. Our overall mission is to end the war on drugs and take that money and go after the predators. Yes. And it's the war on drugs that has corrupted and just caused this massive amount of ever-expanding black market money to, you know, cause chaos all over the world from what you are describing to knife crime in London to hundreds of thousands dead in Mexico. The other thing you touched on is rehabilitation through art. So I work closely with the Cursor Trust out of London, and they help prisoners rehabilitate through art, whether it's poetry, rap, writing, you know, so many different categories that they have. And there's so much talent as well in prison that is absolutely wasted because people are just warehoused for private prisons or state prisons, which are getting reams of taxpayers' money and none of that hardly is going to the prisoners because the, the, the food, the food and, and the conditions are shit. And people are saying, well, shouldn't prisoners' food and conditions be shit? Yeah, if they are murderers, rapists, pedophiles, predators, it should. But I imagine from your experience you saw that prison in Venezuela mostly housed society's vulnerable people, people from the poorest communities, people with addiction issues, and all these predatory entities yeah. trying to make money off the back of it. And, and I think one of the, you, you touched on, on two important themes, no? is that in, in Venezuela, there's something that, that's really weird. And you know, from, not weird, but I think it's part of the human condition. It's like when a predator goes in, when a rapist, a, a child molest or something, they kill them immediately. Like it's, which, you know, obviously it's like, it's a weird thing to, to say because there's no, 
death penalty in Venezuela. But and so the system is flawed in that way. It's like, right, you're sending, but it's it's just an interesting anecdote to say, like, all right, the, uh, even within the criminals, there's a subsection which is like you're less than a criminal because when you're when you're in 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 the gang wars or when you're uh, dealing with narcotics or what, it's mostly it's it's wars that are going on between different camps and sides of like this side of the ladder with that side of the ladder with the neighborhood and i control this territory and it's all about you know like you said if if you make these these drugs illegal which you know philosophically i might be in your camp i, I still have many issues to, to resolve around that but if you make that illegal you make that you, you force people to protect that with weapons and then that creates all of these gang wars that end up happening of you know, every single one, like of the 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 crew that that we created in the in the prison, is called the Free Convicts. So that that's the name of the hip hop group, and all of them have been in war since they were twelve years old, thirteen years old, because either their brother was murdered by a by a fellow gang's leader, or so it's all of these. It's it's not like they're not like murdering psychopaths going on doing serial killing and and uh and you know and or or sicari, uh, how do you call it, like hired killings or stuff like that it's more like oh he killed my brother so now i gotta arm myself because if not he's coming after me because if not he thinks and so that perpetuates a cycle of of warfare that that's a lot of the people that you do meet certain people that you can feel like it's super weird because for me it was how do you i got to a point where i was like i would sleep in prison i would spend three days in, in, in sleeping in, in the general penitentiary of Venezuela with all these people. But once I had already understood the rules and I knew that I was in a certain way protected because there's codes, like there, there's a lot, I, I think it's a lot related to like pirates in, in their day. It's like you have certain codes that you have to abide by. And if you abide by those codes, you'll, you'll be fine. And in within that code, like being a visitor already gives you like a certain hate, like a certain aura of protection because the visitors are the ones who bring the news from outside. They bring the food from outside. They bring the the they bring the the the, the money from outside to pay things like la causa, which is the name of the documentary, the cause, which is their own system of taxation that they use in order to maintain the prison. Not only for self defense, which is like there's the weapon side of that. La causa is used to buy bullets, to buy weapons, and it's also used to buy toys for the childrens on the days of of Children's Day. And so you would you would get in one of the most shocking things in the documentary is not like after a while you, you start seeing the weapons and you get used to like okay okay so they're weapons but then you start seeing these kids and you start seeing these like robin hood-esque but not really because you see them like wearing gold and and these lenses and like these reggaeton type of outfits and giving away motorcycles for free uh, uh, machinery for free like all of these things for free and then you're like wow this is it's it's creating such a weird reality in which they're raffling off to kids and you would see the kids like dancing to it, it, it in the documentary that's one of the craziest scenes and i was able to film that for i stayed for like an entire week the parties lasted for a week while they were like giving gifts to the children like toy story gifts to the children you would see mickey mouse dancing next to guys with weapons it was it was just so surreal so on the subject of sex offenders and what happens to them i can't remember if it was natalie welch or it was peter triton who was in Ecuador, Natalie was in Venezuela, they said that it was just understood in court by the sex offenders that when they were convicted, they should say goodbye to their family members in court, knowing that they would be executed in the prison. And when they got to the prison, they had a choice as to kill themselves or convict justice, whereby they would be tortured and killed 
I, I don't know any firsthand experience. Like I was, I, I heard the the rumors or the stories of of what had happened, but I was never there to witness anything like that. But uh, but I'm like, if if you know, it's it's pretty sure that if if somebody within the system knows that you're a rapist and especially pedophile and, and that you're not gonna last very long, and so. Sometimes what I've heard is like if the guard lets you in and he says, "Look, we have a, a rapist, we have a child molester, we have this," then that person will probably not last the night. Because there are even even within the prison there are these Hammurabi type codes of an eye for an eye. So if you steal from from within anybody in the prison, your sentence is to be shot in the hands. Like if you get and if you steal again, you get shot in the foot, or depending on who you are, you get you get killed. So so there's there's this like dictator. Uh, authoritarian rule by rule of force, which is the only way that they are able to keep control while inside. Because when when in the the way that this happened was that in the 90s, the, the the people that they would send to the prisons to protect the prisoners or to guard the prisons were the ones who had committed offenses within the National Guard. So like if you're sending the worst of the National Guard to protect the criminals of society, you're eventually going to create a system in which this happens. And so they started smuggling in first small revolvers and stuff like that. And they don't get paid anything, peanuts, like not even, they don't, they don't make, make even $20 a week, like uh, in, in, in these, in these uh, jobs. And imagine if a kingpin is offering you a 10% of a cocaine shipment, what are you going to say? No. And, and that's gonna, that's going to create the system in which eventually it caused an internal vacuum of power, and those were the the I think the blood. This I wasn't documenting by then, but but through the stories of inmates who have been in the prisons for twenty years, they told me like the bloodiest years were the late nineties, the early two thousands, because there was that vacuum of power, and you were the the gang members or or the different tiny gangs were trying to find who collected the entire power. Exactly like how states were built, you know, like you, you know small tribes throughout and then the, the one kingpin that united all of them created a sense of stability through an iron fist i'm not i'm obviously like that's not, not how a prison system should work but it's interesting to see how the leviathan eventually comes out even within these types of environments so in your 10 years making documentary in the prisons of venezuela what was the most dangerous situation you encountered i think well, I, I I was there when when uh, a lot of like you would be say eventually what 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 ended up happening is that I when we built the music studio that would be like my oasis right so I would go there and that would be from the locust of where I would like either go film or or if I felt like all right we things are getting very heated let me go back in there was one time that I saw like I I heard the like going on around all prison I was like oh shit something's about and then it just stopped it happened and then and then it stopped. Uh, and then another time, this was in one of the most dangerous prisons that, because I visited a lot of them, but then I eventually decided to stop doing that because at first all of these prisons were conglomerated into, into like one strong mafia, but then those mafias divided and I was visiting all of these prisons. So I could have been seen either as a spy or somebody like who were, wasn't supposed to be there. And I went to one of these prisons and the first time I got in, this, this Lucero, which are like the lieutenants, gave me a grenade and he put it in my hand and he says, if anybody tries anything, you just pull this pin. And I was like, Oh shit, this is the first time I ever, and it was, it was, I was like, well, uh, no, no, thank you. Like if this explodes, like I prefer not to explode, please. And, and that, but, but mostly like I was insulated from a lot of that because eventually I was like, Oh, Oh no, that's Andres. He's the photographer. Oh, that's Andres. He's working with the, with the musicians or so. So they knew not to, 
because they knew I wasn't part of their criminal underbelly and I wasn't messing with them or I wasn't trying to expose anybody because I, in, in order for me to get in, I had to talk to the, the higher ups of the higher ups. These were like the Pablo Escobars of Venezuela at the moment. Well, not well. Some of them are in in other positions of government and military, but the the ones that that were in prison, uh, I, I had to sit down and talk with him. And and I remember sitting down with the kingpin this one time, and he brought a bottle of rum to me and sat me in front of the entire prison in his like roof where where the where he would oversee the prison, and he put a chair a chair. He told his guards to leave, and he's like, "You and I are gonna drink this bottle together, and we're gonna figure out what what we're gonna talk about." And I was like, "All right," and we drank the entire bottle. And he asked me questions about my world and where I come from and what I do. And I asked him about his and, and about his perspective on life. And it was super interesting to, to, to talk to a guy. Like, obviously, I, well, at that point, I wasn't scared anymore because it had been many, many years. And, and I knew that, that I was doing what I had to be doing. But, but to ask him, like, man, don't you think that eventually you've created so many enemies in here that, that you're going to die? Like, somebody's going to kill you. And he's like, yeah, man, but I already chose, I chose the life of metal and the life of metal is going to take me away. And, and he like and he wasn't one of these like because he was older so the, the older the kingpins are that tend to be more because they've lasted so they, they they're more temperate the the more dangerous ones are the younger ones who you know quick fire quick rapid shooting and and that though that's when okay if you if there's a young kingpin in a prison kind of you want to steer clear away because you don't know how his passions or how he's going to go so talking to those different types of personalities and people who had lived under the prison system for 30 years gave you so much understanding of the different moments in society and what, what kind of happened politically, because also Venezuela is super centralized in governmental authority. And a lot of what happened in Venezuela, why there was such a huge crime spike in Venezuela is because after Chavez came in, he did a policy understanding that there was a lot of uh, social justice issues and a lot of these imprisonment for stupid things like weed or, 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 or small drugs or these things. They released a lot of people who had been 10 years in prison without a sentence. But you released a lot of people that, okay, yeah, maybe he went in as a weed trafficker, but you don't know how throughout those 10 years, the amount of networks he built, what he had to do to survive in that prison, how psychologically he was affected. And so you released a lot of people without any job opportunities into a place in which they, it created a huge backlash. And now Maduro's government, which is a totally fascist government, it has nothing to do with the left. They are killing everyone. There's not, not a single, there's not a single, like, I know friends of mine in the free convict group who've, who've had their cousins killed right in front of them. The, they come with a, the, the police comes to do extrajudicial killings with the masks up and cover it all up. And they just come in, not asking questions, shooting everybody. And that was their policy because Maduro either had to take control of the country's cr crime or he would have lost the country at all uh, completely. So that, that was what they did. They became very strong on crime and they did it by, by killing people. Wow, absolutely fascinating talking to you this evening. I can't wait to watch the full doc. I've watched the trailer. Yeah. Where can people find it then? We're going to put all the links below the video. Yeah. And yeah, um, it's how do people watch it? Yeah, it's on Amazon uh, all over. And the only place that we still haven't released it is Venezuela. We're still figuring out the kinks on how to do that. Uh, but uh, in in the UK, it's on Amazon. You can watch it on Vimeo and iTunes. It's, it's all over. Just look for La Causa. Or the cause, because sometimes with the translations, it's but but uh, it's there. It's it's available to watch on mainly Amazon and, and iTunes are the ones that I direct people to. Well, thanks, Andres. And where's the, your preferred <laughs> method of people contacting you? Are you on the socials? Nope, I don't use social media. I think it distracts me too much. But I can. Um, my email can be posted there, and I'll I'll give you the the link. And um, do, you have, do you have a website? 
I the, the my company website capitolio.co uh, that's where the like my production company's website but I try to be very I don't know I'm I'm uh, I'm not a fan of social media Okay, well, we have got your links for Vimeo, Amazon USA, Amazon UK, and the trailer and iTunes all are going to be posted up, and they're already in the comments right now for the viewers. All right, huge thank you again, man. Good luck with your thank work. You, thank you, man. Take yeah, care. yeah, take care. Cheers. So that was Andres, frontline warrior, exposing the devastation caused by drug laws. Prisons are just completely run all over the world by drug gangs. The illegal market in drugs is the biggest profit opportunity in the history of the world for criminals, organizations of crime, cartels, and on and on and on it goes, and on and on the mayhem goes. And Andres sounds like he's documented the Venezuelan experience immaculately so i will be checking that out all right next guest pekka mikkonen foreign news reporter for the largest finnish newspaper based in helsinki and we're going to be going back to the nygaard case now let me just scroll through the people let's have a look where are you? Page one, page two, page three. Uh-huh. My camera's gone, but I'm going to bring Pekka in now while I replace my battery. Fear not about the screen going down. That was my camera battery. It is not a case of further attacks coming over to Plagos on patreon i should probably reappear just in time for pekka to appear he's coming up at any moment now let's see close the chat oh there we go hello hi good evening yes good evening could you pronounce your name for us first please you did great it's pekka mukkanen Okay, good, good. I was just totally winging it there. Yeah, sure. Um, well, thank Very you for good. joining us. Thank you. And um, do you want just to say a little about, bit about what your expertise is and what you do? Well, I'm a foreign news reporter. I've been that for about 27, 28 years, and I'm kind of a jack of all trades. I've been covering China for five years in China. I was uh, our US correspondent in America. I was our EU correspondent in Brussels, and then I've done... Uh, a lot of war reporting, like in Liberia, Somalia, Afghanistan, East Timor, etc. So, kind of a here and there and everywhere. So, uh, no expertise on anything in particular. And um, are you a bit of an adrenaline junkie then to go to such dangerous places? I, I think when I was younger, I was, but uh, <laughs> I've, I've uh, decreased that a lot. So, uh, last time I was in a war zone was in Syria uh, about one and a half years ago. So, I've, I've cut down a lot. You know, I'm wow. uh, peaceful I life now. <laughs> I, I can only imagine some of the things that you've seen. Yeah. But let, let's get straight to the subject at hand then. What got you interested in the Nygaard case? Well, one obvious point is that he was born in my city. 
So he's from Helsinki. Um, he lived here about 10 of his first years and then he immigrated to Canada. So for years and years, he was basically the topic of the kind of a yellow press, if you can call that, uh, or magazines, you know, would have stories about his great success in, in garment industry. Uh, evening papers, magazines would go and visit his home in the Bahamas or in California and show what a great success story we have. And he was that dream come true. You know, someone crosses the Atlantic and finds gold. So he was that kind of figure. I never, I, I think I once wrote something, a little uh, cut and paste story about the little disputes he had with his neighbor, Louis Bacon in the Bahamas, but I, I didn't pay any attention. He was not the kind of person I would cover. When did it start to turn sour for him in the Finnish press? Um, I'd say it was the uh, class action suit. Um, there had been, I'd say, occasional reports about, uh, uh, you, you know, allegations and stuff, but it was never really seriously reported. And, and then when the class action suit came out with the first 10 women, uh, I think none of them from the Bahamas and one, one American uh, accusing him of rape, uh, in in uh, mid-February last year. That's when the story kind of became. And it happened so that um, I, I was walking to my shift. My boss walks up and says, do you know anything about Nygaard? And I said, not much. I know he lives in the Bahamas. And he said, well, do you have free hands? And I had, you, you know, two, <laughs> two, two free hands. And I, I, I just uh, read the lawsuit. And I was like, oh, my goodness, what's going on? And... Uh, since then, I think I've written uh, 14 or 15 pieces about him. So uh, he's kept me quite busy alongside uh, uh, COVID-19 and, uh, and reporting on Donald Trump. It's interesting that this is his home country then. So if he was this iconic figure and then news started to sour, were the public shocked or did he receive support in his home country? Um, he always had this image of being a playboy. Um, and so I think against this backdrop, it wasn't... Um, and I think there were a lot of rumors, like in the kind of celebrity circles, that something uh, terrible is sometimes happening there, here, there, whispers. So I, I think a lot of people who would know him beforehand, they would they would not be that surprised. Um, and, and And then ordinary people would just like, feel like oh my goodness you know there there is that uh american canadian bahaman dream and and that's what it's really all about so uh um i i haven't seen any public opinion polls about what people think of him so i wouldn't have any data to to refer to okay before we go over to the co-conspirator that you focused on alleged co-conspirator let's say um because he grew up in your country then i mean we've had some very interesting information about jean-luc brunel from fred over in france is there information that you have about him what his life was like in your country growing up that's generally not available in the western speaking world well i haven't really studied his time in finland and i don't think there is much known about that time but uh but he left, I think, uh, about seven years after the, the war. So Finland was kind of in ruins. 
And uh, if if I'm not mistaken, he he left Finland 1952, which was the year of the Olympics. That would be seven years after the Second World War. So um, at that time, Finland was kind of in you know in shambles in so many ways that uh, let's say if his family was poor, he would be just uh, a part of a large majority of the country. So he ended up in Canada. And he built the business from scratch, or did he have resources? I think they came pretty empty-handed. His parents, uh, I, I guess they started a bakery or something there. Um, and, and then he, he was just an ambitious businessman who then managed to find a little opportunity. He bought the little business there and started off. But I, it's not like he inherited wealth. And then he's not like Donald Trump. He's, he's pretty much like a self self-made man as far as I can tell. How did he become so successful then? What attributes does he possess that enabled him to rise up from nothing? I don't know. Um, some people say he had a lot of business genius. Um, I, I don't know. And then some people seem to doubt whether he was such a great uh, genius at all. But um, I understand the way he explained his own success was that he targeted audience that was uh, overlooked. Like, let's say, uh, if majority of the the, the uh, fashion business would focus on young, slim, good-looking uh, women, he felt like, hey, what about all the other women? You know. So I I believe he somehow was able to to find the customer base that was uh, somewhat overlooked. But again, I'm not a fashion industry expert but this is just something i've seen out there and he got away with these crimes for decades why do you think that is the case um that's the incredible that's the one million or one billion dollar question is how do you do this for 50 years um i think in the class action suit the, the oldest case is from 1977 i think i've seen references to rape allegations from early 70s it's incredible we're talking about 50 years uh, we're talking about a well-known figure we're talking about a figure who's in public life um, a figure people would recognize from tv news um, how do you get away with it um, i think the main reason was that if he created a clever business for his fashion industry, he also created a clever business for his sex crimes. And I've heard the uh, uh, the lawyers in the class action suit saying that uh, throughout the decades, there have been hundreds of people aiding him in one way or the other. And when you think about it, if he drugged those girls and women in the Bahamas, I don't think he was the guy who would go and buy the date uh, rape drug, he, he would have someone to go and get it. He would have a bouncer there. And then let's say uh, if he allegedly raped somebody and had to pay 500 or $5,000 uh, of hush money, someone had to approve that payment. There had to be a company accountant involved in that. And then if someone was to go and talk about him bad things in the press, there would have to be people involved stopping that thing from happening. So you had people in all kinds of layers 
doing some very very practical things you you know how do you get a girl to enter his compound then how do you make that act of crime happen on the scene and then you would have people much higher up people who would be cleaning up the mess if anything should go uh, become legal or become public so one of these people allegedly you have focused on and do you want do you want to pronounce this person's name tina yeah yeah it's tina tulikorpi and okay. uh, yeah um she's mentioned in the the um uh, class action suit as among uh one of the 13 key co-conspirators um this is the chain door one to 57 case and then uh, in the case of April Telek versus Angela Dyborn, which is April Telek is that famous actress from Canada, former Miss Canada, who sued uh, uh, Peter Nygaard's niece. And uh, in that lawsuit, they're narrowing down. They're saying that Tina Tulikorpi, Angela Dyborn, the niece, and, and then a guy called a, a former higher up in the, in the Nygaard companies called Greg Fensky. They are the three key people who were uh, enablers. Uh, the way they reference that in the lawsuit is more like talking about the uh, financial angle of things. Um, but people had different kinds of roles. So I would say Angela Dyborn, from what I've read in the lawsuit, she seemed to be more hands-on when it comes to actually enabling the actual crimes, the sex crimes. Whereas uh, uh, Fensky and Tulikorpi would have roles in a kind of more corporate office, in an air-conditioned room with a coffee machine, and maybe thousands of kilometers away from where the uh, alleged crimes would happen. And she protected him from lawsuits and bad publicity. Yeah, uh, I would say uh, what I found out, and I interviewed about 10 people for my story and then a bunch of documents. Um, what I could safely say is that she was the most loyal and most trusted employee. And I had two people who told me that they had seen her working for him or with him in 1987. Uh, one person told me 1988. So we're talking about, about 33, 34 years of very close um, uh, relationship. And this is really incredible because you, you're thinking about a company of 1,600 people, uh, someone who is by title, her title was uh, marketing and promotions uh, manager, I think, or director. Um, it doesn't sound like a very important figure when you think about a big international clothing empire, uh, but she somehow managed to convince Peter Nygaard that this woman I can trust Whenever I'm in big trouble, this is the woman I can call. And I heard uh, one person who had worked for Nygaard previously told me that uh, she was the one who would always have access to him. It was like, no matter what time of the day she's calling, he's available. Whereas not everybody could, uh, you, you know, disturb his peace. And uh, so whenever Tina is calling, bring me the phone immediately. So she was the kind of a firewoman of, of all kinds of operations. And um, I'd say, uh, again, when it goes to the higher level, 
when it's something like uh, a PR scandal, when it's uh, when it's something that, say, Canadian Broadcasting Company would be doing a documentary about Nygaard, that's when she would be involved in, in that sort of things. So she was his Max Clifford, basically, then. Um, do you have any examples of her work that suppressed the bad news about him? Yeah, um, there, there is a very famous case uh, in Finland, um, a violinist called uh, Linda Lampenius, who uh, basically gave an, uh, an interview for a Finnish magazine called Seitsemanpäivä, meaning seven days. Uh, it's kind of a yellow press uh, gossip magazine. And she gave an interview to them, '98, uh, uh, saying she had visited Nygaard's uh, house in Marina del Rey in California. And then in a breakfast situation, he had shown her some pictures from his Bahamas party. Indication was, hey, that's a fun place. Would you like to visit me? And, and the pictures were of naked people covered with food. And that was his way of showing, like, this is the kind of thing would be waiting for you. And so she gave an interview for this paper um, saying, you know, this guy showed me this terrible, lewd, tasteless pictures. Um, and, and that's pretty much that. He sued her um, asking for $40 million in damages for that. That was, and, and, and she was a violin player. Uh, so she uh, she went broke as a result. Uh, she had to pay f- uh, about five hundred thousand euros in legal fees, um, and and she became bulimic. She became uh, suicidal, and she had to work herself like day and night. She had to tour Asia, Russia, anywhere, everywhere. Anybody would hear her play violin just to pay for the legal fees. And so how they resolved this situation was she had to pay for a full-page ad in an evening paper in Finland to apologize to Nygaard for a terrible thing that she has done to him. And so she, she buys this full-page ad, and this is, the, this is how she was able to get Nygaard to back off. And then Tina Tulikorpi would be involved in this operation very closely, including the ad that was supposed to be the violin player's apology quoted Tina Tulikorpi in the ad, accepting the apology on behalf of Peter Nygaard. And then a very weird twist, at this, on the same day's paper, uh, Tina Tulikorpi gives an interview to a trusted reporter where she's talking about what a terrible thing this violin player has done, but you, you know, Peter Nygaard is now graciously ready to put this behind and move on. And uh, it was it was such a terrible thing, and, and, and it ruined her life for about 10 years. So um, that's wow. the kind of things they would be involved in. Yeah. How evil. What is the status of Nygaard's companies now? Is Tina still employed in some capacity by him? Or? Well, that's the thing. I, I was listening to a podcast at CBC, and, um, and they, they managed to get her interviewed. She told me... She cannot give interviews because of all the legal processes going on. And I accepted that, but then she gave me a statement. Uh, so that was something I could run in my story. But, um, uh, but she did give an interview to CBC. And in that interview, she was kind of being emotional about the fact that she and 1,600 other people have lost their jobs. Well, now comes the very curious situation. 
is this. Nygaard supposedly, according to his lawyers, and, and uh, Greg Fensky, who's the close ally I mentioned before, um, they claim all he has left is uh, his property in the Bahamas and his lake uh, front cottage in, in, uh, in Canada. And that's it. This is a man who used to be worth $900 million just a, a couple of years ago. So all he has is a cottage and, and, and an estate. Estate is worth about $40 million, but it's unsellable at this point because of all these legal uh, difficulties surrounding. And that, that's understandable. But I think a big question is, where is the money? I mean, where is that 900 minus maybe 41 million? Uh, where is that money? And I, you, you could assume that obviously um, some of it has been lost in the, in the process of bankruptcies and all that. But uh, um, the, the U.S. authorities and Canadian authorities, they believe that there's still plenty of money out there. And, and people like Dina and Greg and Angela, the ones I mentioned before, are somehow involved in handling this wealth. And, and this came... Um, uh, this came uh, in 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 the um, class action suits and and also in the uh, bail hearings of Nygaard when he was arrested in Canada and now they wondering whether they should extradite him to to the United States. So, like we see, Indyke and Khan facilitating for Epstein over and over again, legal stuff. Um, lots of parallels here. So Tina said she had no idea of his sex crimes. Has any legal action brought, been brought against her? Any allegations? Uh, no. Um, I don't know of any legal case pending against, against her. So, um, and, and we also need to remember Peter Nygaard has never been convicted of any sex crime. So he's innocent before law as, as we speak. Um, what's... What, what I believe, and, and this came across the bail hearings, is that the authorities are really taking a very close look uh, into the, the money situation. Because you have companies, um, the uh, Canadian prosecutor called Scott Fallinger, he mentioned in the bail hearings that um, uh, the two companies uh, called Browse Investments and Edson's Investments, and they together with perhaps some other entities have been able to cash out about 70 million US dollars uh, since uh, Peter Nygaard, you, you know, got into this trouble. And so um, in, in the court, uh, Fensky was saying that Peter Nygaard doesn't owe these companies. So when I went to the uh, California Secretary of State website, the, the business directory to see, so who's running these companies? So you have the same people that you see in the um, in the um, uh, class action suit. The co-conspirators' names are all over these companies, and um, so Tina Tulkarp is running Edsons and she's running Browse. Those two companies that were mentioned, and then uh, a very interesting company I've I've heard of, and and again I haven't seen the paper trail of this, so I I believe FBI has a lot of. Uh, very interesting information on these, but uh, and I came across this uh, interesting sounding company called Hilka Properties. Okay, maybe in London this sounds like nothing, but 
um, so Hilka Properties is something that was created in August last year. And guess what was the name of that company just four months earlier? It was Nygaard Properties. Nygaard, I was going to say yeah. Nygaard. Yeah, yeah it, it was called Nygaard Properties. Okay. And then uh, guess who is Hilka? Hilka was Nygaard's mom. Mm. And what was the name of Nygaard's boat? Lady Hilka. Mm. Okay. So I'm just uh, putting arrows here and there and there. I asked Tina Tulikorpi about this. Like, what is this company? What do you do? What, what, why, why are you involved in this kind of company? You know, it used to be Nygaard Properties, now Hilka Properties. And then um, just pure coincidence, but this, this same company that was registered in, in California May of last year uh, was, uh, had a branch incorporated in Florida in, in November 23 last year. Uh, and that was the same day when that uh, lawsuit was brought against Angela Dyborn. Uh, by April Telek, that uh, actress, former Miss Canada. And if you go and look at the who are running this company, Hilka Properties uh, in, in California and Florida, it's Angela Dyborn and Tina Tulikorpi. And look, if these are unemployed people, uh, they, they are involved in all kinds of things. Very, very busy year for them. And and so I'm not saying I know what's going on in these companies, but I, I've I've seen what the authorities are saying. Look, there's something fishy going on in these companies, and it's funny to see this same collection of names circling around in these papers. Well, great job researching all of this. We've just got a couple of minutes left. What's going to happen to the super predator Peter Nygaard? Now he's behind bars. How will it play out in the court system? I, I talked to one of the lawyers yesterday. Uh, the number of women accusing him of rape is now it's exceeding 120. Wow. Uh, it was 10 one year ago. When I was doing a story on Tina Tulikorpi one month ago, the number of women was 95. It's, it's 25 more today than it was one month ago. Um, I, I've interviewed just Beverly Peel uh, a supermodel who had a son for Nygaard, who's accusing him of rape. I, uh, it, I don't think it looks very good from his point of view. That's a, a good note to end it on then, because that's what everybody's rooting for. All right, so thank you very much for coming on. Thank you if, for having me. If, if people want to reach out to you and support your work, we're gonna, we'll, we'll include the links. What's your preferred method of people getting in touch with you and, and supporting you? Well, email is good. Email is good. Email. Yeah. All right. We'll get Ash on top of that then. All right. All right. Thank you very much. You enjoy the Thank rest you. of your evening. You Cheers, too. Becca. Thanks. Take bye care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Yeah. Good grief. He'd done his research on that company stuff. And Tina. Fascinating angle from someone in Nygaard's motherland. And we've had loads come in from Fred. All right, so we're going to bring Matthew Steeples in now. I'm going to refresh my screen because my chat has stopped scrolling. So the camera might go off briefly. Bear with me. Reload.
Twitter, trending on Twitter, the Stuart Lubbock case. I discussed it with Sonia Poulton. She was outraged that Stuart Lubbock's dad had never, never got any justice. Let's see. I hear there is a four-hour, 40-minute podcast coming up. What day is that? <laughs> That's Steve Ray. If he broke the record, that one's coming up. It's on premiere now, actually. I think it's a week on Monday. All right, let me go into the people pages. Ash is telling me that Matthew's on page four. Let's get right over to page four then. Ding, ding, ding. Let's see. Go back a page. I think these people move around pages as well, depending on who's on and off. All right. Invite Matthew onto the screen. Here we go. Right on time. You should be coming through any moment now. If you are overseas, you might not be familiar with this case, but it is big. Good evening. Hello again. Hello, and very nice to be with you again. <laughs> You've How's it going? You. Your pages eventually do work out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand technology much myself, so, you know, I don't know how you do this every week, every couple of days, but you're, you've got great enthusiasm and some great followers because they've been all following me on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, we put the um, stuff on YouTube today and it got a tremendous response. Last time I looked, I think it had over 10,000 views. I imagine it's considerably more right now, but all your links are in there. And people, wa people watching this clip as well, I'm going to urge people to click on your links and, and support what you're doing. And thanks for coming back so soon. But this story has just been trending. Yes, indeed. And Apparently, you have some expertise in it. We've got two stories to talk about, I suppose. The okay. first, I don't know which one do you want to talk about first. What are, what's the other one? Well, you, we've got Miss Maxwell and we've got uh, Mr. L M poor old Stuart Lubbock, who was murdered by his by somebody unknown in, in a swing pool at Mr. Barrymore's house. All right, because we've got we're, the viewers are obsessed with Maxwell on the channel. Let's start with Maxwell. Okay, well, um, today I've written about Miss um, Maxwell's involvement in a car rally in 2019. Given that the person that organised the car rally has now announced that she is raising funds for women who are trafficked, um, perhaps she should have vetted said person before she accepted her as a participants in her car rally, given that, um, I'll just check my dates, the 16th of April, Maria Farmer um, submitted her affidavit, and uh, the 13th of June, Miss Maxwell participated in the launch event, which I somehow happened to attend by accident. Um, <laughs> so I think Miss um, Julie Brungstrup has some questions to answer. And do you think this is just this common form of camouflage? You've got Jimmy Savile raising all this money I for think, the, you know the, 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 these really worthy causes. You've got 
Maxwell trying to save the oceans and all this stuff. Super predators just constantly camouflage themselves in charity activity, Clinton Foundation, another one. Maxwell's Oceans charity was very much her, her, you know, her little... Sound has gone. ...to traffic people. Check the top me. Um, I I think uh, Maxwell's involvement with other things were just the arrogance of her and her father who believed they were above the law, they could do anything they wanted, put the name to anything, you know, pose with anybody from Piers Morgan to Prince Charles. Um, Those people are not guilty of anything other than being dragged into a picture with her on that regard. But on this occasion, this woman, Miss Brangstrup, should have vetted her given that her own charity is about trafficked women when a victim, alleged victim, Maria Farmer, had already submitted a deposition. So why would you want her on your car rally? And has she given excuse as to why she did? She refuses to answer my questions. And I, yeah. I, I was in the very restaurant where she had the launch party with a lady who sat actually in this very room with me now, but I won't mention her name. But um, we, we, we are actually in, you know, we, we were in vicinity to this. Uh, I, I'd walked past the car and I liked the Alfa Romeo, so I took a picture of it, which is the only reason I have that picture of that car, because I like the car, because it's quite a rare Alfa Romeo. But I didn't know that she was driving it with... Nettie Mason, the um, uh, wife of uh, Nick Nick Mason, Pink Floyd drummer. But she raised pound zero for that charity. Now, why would any charity want anything to do with somebody who raises, raises pound zero? Not a very good quality person, I'd say. <laughs> so the other Maxwell news this week, then, is yep. her brother speaking out. And it's a golden rule. If you're pre-trial, your lawyer will say, do not speak to the media because you can have the greatest intention in the world, but one sentence said incorrectly or misconstrued will be quoted against you in court at trial. Why on earth do you think Ian is doing this? What's what's the motivation? The PR peddler, as I call him, has decided that this is the strategy because they've got nothing to lose. There is no, they have nothing to lose. These people are in a complete mess. They don't have any other options. So they think shouting and yelling is the best option they've got. But it's not doing them any favours, is it, really? No, it's not. The judge is is not going to look kindly upon the pressure being applied. Kindly upon people who are very wealthy with, you know, 30 million pounds of resources ranting and raving and getting a bit crazy it doesn't really endear you to the public who are ordinary people exactly all right so let us go over then to the barrymore case and this terry lubbock i mean the cause of death is absolutely horrendous well, it's an appalling it, the way he died. Uh, Stuart Lubbock, not Terry Lubbock, because oh, Terry, sorry, Terry is the father. Is the, is the father? Is the father? That's right. He is a lovely man, and um, 
and I've spoken with his daughter, and uh, well, I've had e email correspondence with his daughter in recent days. Um, you know, she said to me, and I'll quote her directly, she said, um, you are the only online news source that said Stuart Lubbock in the headline. We have to remember in all of this that Stuart Lubbock is the victim. Stuart Lubbock is the important person here. Michael Barrymore is not the important person. Michael Barrymore is a person who's told lies. He has been proven to tell lies. He sold stories to Piers Morgan for £60,000. He wouldn't face Terry Lubbock on television. He is not somebody who I consider a reliable witness. So we've got a big American audience. Could you just go over what happened, the story? So with, with regard to this event, um, Michael Barrymore is a person who was considered a television entertainer. He was a comedian and I don't know what else you might call him, um, Saturday Night Host. And he made people laugh with enjoyment. And, you know, he, he, he was loved by the nation. And he had a lovely wife called Cheryl. And Cheryl was a decent woman. And she died of cancer, ultimately. And her story is probably something that will be key to the unveiling of the reality of this. Um, uh, Mr. Barrymore um, had an affair with... A, a man and he was outed by a newspaper and he subsequently was gay, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that either. You know, he, he, but at that time it was a little different because different era, but on the particular night in question, he went to an Indian or Chinese restaurant. I can't remember. He he had a meal. He went to a nightclub called the Millennium Nightclub. He met a number of people who he had never met before, including a man called Stuart Lubbock. Mr. Lubbock and others, including two ladies who were, I think one was 17. Mr. Lubbock was 31, went to his home, which was a bungalow. They call it a mansion. It was never a mansion. This is a small house on a cul-de-sac. It's nothing spectacular, as they say. Um, it has a swimming pool, and there was a part, There was an after-party. They, they took drugs together. They drank, and in the course of the evening, um, in the early hours of the morning, by 5.46 or something, I think it was, Mr. Lubbock was dead. Um, but it was March, so why would Mr. Lubbock be in the swimming pool, diving into the swimming pool? Because it wouldn't make sense, because it was freezing cold. They had been in the jacuzzi. Mr. Barrymore had been in the jacuzzi. Um, and Mr. Barrymore's boyfriend was a man called Jonathan Kenny. Mr. Kenny was a ex-drag queen and an estate agent. He's from Blackpool, Lancashire. Um, he he's now supposedly a driving instructor. Um, he's 50 years old now. Um, the person who has been accused this evening may correlate to that person, but there were only nine people present that evening. Um, 
and two of them are women and one man the man who's been arrested is a man so so it re that reduces it to seven people um whatever happened one of those people was present involved in that murder um but the police the essex police will say that two people have been involved in that murder so goodness knows what will come out next so from the injuries then did this is it this definitely a murder and it could have been some kind of accident at least the police have repeatedly said this is a murder what kind of motivation would be behind this I think these people were drunk, drugged, and delusional, and you know, crazy. And they—I don't think it was—it was a party that went wrong. I don't think it was, you know, people luring someone with the intention of putting an axe in someone's head or something. You know, it's a different kind of thing. But um, I think this case. It went very wrong, and all those people lied, and ultimately every one of those people present, and I've named them repeatedly in my publication, The Steeple Times, they are all guilty of perverting the course of justice because poor, um, poor Terry Lubbock, the father of Stuart Lubbock, is a man dying of cancer, and he wants justice before he dies. And his ex-wife, who was in contact with me at the weekend, she would like justice for her children and for her her ex-father-in-law. I think these people deserve justice and somebody should finally tell the truth. So if you're a big-time TV personality and there's a murder at your house and you just leave the scene... So you want me to tell you about that? Mr Barrymore, supposedly, according to reports... Um, uh, the, the 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 there were noises heard at that house at around about five a.m. I believe, um, but nobody called the nobody called an ambulance till five forty-five a.m. And subsequently, Mr. Barrymore, according to one of the other women who were present, was rumbling through drawers, and then he left because he needed time to find his own safe space. And he ran away from the house. Now, it's his house. Who is responsible for his guests at his house? He is, you know, and then his agent appeared, and then the thermometer that was supposedly used as an implement in the tragic death of this poor man has now disappeared. So there are many inconsistencies in this case. Now, we, do, we don't know the truth, but I will say why why has why has essex police behaved in this way essex police have a, a history of not being very good with particular cases you have to look at jeremy bamba's case you have to look at the case of the range rover murders essex police don't seem to be very efficient well all right i'm going to ask the audience if they've got any questions before we wrap this up Let's see, questions, and I mean, 20 years later, what, what, what came to light to change everything? Um, I believe um, 
Terry Lubbock is about to die. He is someone suffering with cancer and he wants closure and he is prepared to spend the money to get a decent barrister, which he's done. And that barrister has highlighted new evidence. I see. You don't know the nature of the new evidence. Well, the new evidence has resulted in the arrest of said individual, but Twitter will confirm the name of the person if you want to look that person up. There is the name of a person. I believe that person's name is correct. Okay. Well, we've got a few minutes left if you're watching this. If you've got a question for myself or Matthew, now is the time to come forward. If Ash has got any questions, just put them in the Skype box, which I've got open. And um, what what other stuff are you working on right now? You, you, you're fascinated. You've got all kinds of stuff. Well, Jeremy Bamber is a case that very much fascinates me. I, I know people on both sides of that matter. Um, yeah. One friend of mine knew Miss Cafell, and another friend of mine knew Mr. Bamber. And um, I do think either way, Jeremy Bamber was subject to an unfair trial. I think he deserves another trial. Um, I write about that a lot. I'm, I'm obviously very interested in Miss Maxwell. Um, and I also am very, very involved with the Menendez brothers via a friend of mine in America called uh, Robert Rand, who was one of the main reporters on the Menendez trials. Wow. Kate Walshaw wants to know, is Michael Barrymore likely to be questioned again now? I think I think Michael Barrymore will be questioned again inevitably because the person who has been arrested is no longer in a relationship with him if it's the same person. Um, so they have no loyalty to him. All right, brilliant. All right, we're going to wrap it up here then, Matthew. Okay, well, thank you very much. It's always a great pleasure. You have a good rest of your evening. Take thank care. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So you may have seen our next guest on Joe Rogan. Hey, Peter, how's it going? Hey, Sean, how are you? Great. Whereabouts in the world are you? What? Which state? Uh, at the moment, I'm in Portland, Oregon, uh, and I'm, I'm hoping to leave as soon as possible, as every sane person I know. It's, it's actually <laughs> interesting. Almost every single person I know from the middle class wants to leave Portland. Are you going to become a snowbird and move down to Arizona, where I lived for 17 years? No, I might I might get just the smallest of small places in Austin, and then uh, I'm very fond of, of Washington. But I think Oregon, I think I've had it with Portland. Yeah. The mayor has, well, it's a long story, probably bore you, but <laughs> the uh, the crime, the the violence, the homelessness, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Just driving around is every day, it's just, I'm just stunned. Whenever I drive up to Washington on I-5, I'm always, I always feel so tense and it just, I just figured out why it's like, you just see the just miles of just trash and filth and but anyway, so I'm 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 in Portland, but I'm leaving. I'm probably going to sell my house pretty soon, and I'm very excited about that. And I'm moving on to greener pastures. Nothing's keeping me here anymore. Oh well, good luck with that, and congratulations on your phenomenal YouTube success. I watched your stuff with Joe Rogan over <laughs> the years, and I was mesmerized by how you 
put those studies into academia and really showed people up for what they, they were. Yeah, we have a lot of pretentious charlatans running around pretending to know things that they don't know. And they've managed to successfully hoodwink really a generation of people into believing things that are totally untethered to reality. So, um, yeah, it's good. It's good. That, that was, I think, 2018. And now we're 2022 and it's, we, we've seen what happens from, oh, this is a small fringe group of people in the academy. It will never leak out. Don't worry about it to look what we have today. And actually Mike Nana's new film, uh, we'll discuss that. That's coming out, I think in February, he's going to discuss that in detail. I also commend you for your work in the prisons. I don't know if you're familiar with my story, but I made a lot of money in the stock market. It went to my head. I started to throw raves in Port Ecstasy. Ended up in Sheriff Joe Arpaio's jail for that. And I heard all of the prisoners' stories. And before I got arrested, I thought prisons are full of pedophiles, murderers, you know, serial right. killers, etc. But average arrest was like a black kid or a Mexican kid with a little bit of drugs. And these these people, a lot of them have been thrown away as kids or they'd suffered horrific childhood abuse. Correct. And it opened my heart to what was really going on in the world of all these predatory corporations making money off the back of warehousing these people. So how did you end up teaching in prison and which prison was that? So I did my dissertations in prisons and, and uh, here in Multnomah County in Portland, Oregon. I'm just watching all of these. Should we be commenting or looking at the things on the side or no? <laughs> I wouldn't let it distract you. Uh, you can, okay. You can check, all right. You can check it's it out. Me, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, hey, everybody. <laughs> um, so I did my my dissertation at Columbia, Columbia River Correctional Institution. And then I later went on to chair a, a committee, uh, the Prison Advisory Committee. But it's fascinating. Many of the, at the time it was an all male facility, many of the men in that facility, uh, boy, they, they were really, um, they had, as you said, brutally difficult lives. It's called ACEs. And basically we, it's a, it's a crime predictor. There are so many criminogenic factors, like you're seven times more likely to go to prison. If one of your parents has gone to prison or is currently incarcerated and that number multiplies, we can actually linger on this subject if you want for a bit, because it's something very few people talk about because of the nature of it. Um, it's a very dark subject and people just want to kind of think it's over there. And it, again, from this one prison, 75 to 80 percent of the people at the time were uh, I live in Multnomah County. Portland is in Multnomah County. They were re-released to the county. And so these are your neighbors. These are people in your community. And we also know from the literature, the data is very, very, very crystal clear, actually. Uh, a very small amount of money can help people, uh, can help inmates. But the problem is every time those measures come up in bonds or what have you, nobody wants, nobody wants higher taxes. So they're always voted down consistently, which is really a, a shame. Um, so one, one thing, just to linger on that for a second, that nobody very few people talk about we know the predictors for violent crime we know what they are i mean you could probably guess i'm curious i'll ask your audience who are just typing away out there what do you think the three factors for uh to predict violent crime are my guess is that your audience will be able to get two but nobody's going to get the third so we'll we can linger we can linger on that or move on but i want to see what your yeah, audience let's, let's linger because it ties in with the mission statement on this channel in the very beginning we were interviewing people who got out of prison, you know, trying to help them rebuild their lives and share their stories. It, it was cathartic for them. And after interviewing hundreds of people who've been in prison, 
it just became evident to me that childhood abuse was a major factor behind much crime. And then you've got them taking drugs because they don't have the tools to deal with that psychological trauma, which then leads to, for the men, robberies, um, car theft, burglaries, and for the women, uh, sex work and and shoplifting. I just saw this trajectory over and over and over again. Right, you're 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 not you're you're not wrong, uh, but that's not the top three. Um, I'll 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 throw out the top three. So there's a Greg Ellis. That actually, he's he's uh, from from your island there. He has a wonderful book called The Respondent on this, and there's um, another wonderful little book from Pitchstone Press coming out May first that I read the manuscript of um um it's called the gift of violence by matt thornton so here are the three factors most people will guess two of the factors it's males men are just far more likely to engage and we should actually talk about that as well i didn't plan to talk about any of this stuff with you now but it is it's where it's going um and and the other one is age and if memory serves me correctly uh, I think it's 16 to, to 26, your former, like I'm 55. The, the number of people 55 arrested for violent crimes are at a trickle. But here's the thing nobody wants to talk about. Um, to be blunt with you, I try to make this nonpartisan, but there is one side of the political aisle that simply does not want to speak about this. And it's whether or not an adult male is present in the home. That's the third factor. And that's the factor that almost everybody ignores for political reasons, for social reasons. Whether, say that slowly, whether or not an adult male is present in the home. Correct. So the absence of a father. Yeah. And when you think about that, that's a lot of the that should take a lot of the racial stuff away. Right. That should take a lot of the arguments when people are actual racist out of the equation. So it's nothing to do with race. It's actually not even to do with systems in, 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 in the, the broadest possible sense. Adult male. We know the data is crystal clear on that. Adult males in the home. Uh, significantly decrease the likelihood that boys in particular will be uh, uh, predatory criminals, to be blunt. So what is the purpose of prisons and the police? Because I believe it's been subverted by the war on drugs. Oh, the war on drugs is an absolute unmitigated catastrophe. And we, we could drill we could drill down on that. We could talk about that. And actually, another person on your island there, Johan Hari, has written elegantly about that on the screen. And I just read his new book, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, with Hadi Moni's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting about about attention. And uh, I, I actually didn't want to read it. I didn't want to believe it because I like <laughs> being hooked to my devices. Uh, so that yeah. was kind of a that was a it was a, a slap. But um, so it depends, you know, Foucault in discipline and punish and there's a long pedigree in the literature about what people think that the that the purpose of prison inmates uh, the purpose of prison should be should it be a deterrent should it be um a retributive to punish should it be to um um uh give people a skill so when they come out they can do something it, it all depends on one's one's view i'm not I, it what do you think it is all right, so I'm a member of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Drug Prohibition. My buddy is a, an advisor to that. He's on the board. And they say, if you go back for millennia, crime has been defined as person A harming person B, rape, robbery, theft, whatever. But when you go after the lowest hanging fruit to fill the private prison systems, and that lowest hanging fruit is young people with weed possession, was one of the highest arrest categories in the history of criminal justice, hundreds of thousands, almost a million at the peak a year. 
who is that person harming if you arrest a kid with weed? And from my experience, I saw that weed head come into the jail, get recruited by skinhead gangs if they were white, the Aryan Brotherhood, tattoo them up with Hitler and, and swastikas and all kinds. Right. Approximately 90% of the prisoners were injecting heroin. They've got a criminal record. They meet, make their criminal connections in prison. At the gate, they're given $50, told us to have a nice day when they're, when they're exiting. And it's almost by design. They know when that $50 is gone, they've made a name for themselves in the prison system. The outcasts now in society, they're basically clients for life with these private prisons. Yeah, so in Oregon here, not only is marijuana legal, recreational marijuana and medical marijuana, but also small possessions of things like ecstasy, et cetera. They're not, uh, they're, they're not even misdemeanors. It's, it's allowed. The war on drugs has been an unmitigated catastrophe. The idea that there are gateway drugs is totally false. Again, to, to mention Hari's work, he talks about the opposite of addiction uh, is not sobriety, but it's a kind of loneliness or lack of community or isolation from community. We, we see the fentanyl epidemic now, which is an utter catastrophe, and even traditional treatment modalities, buprenorphine right now. I, I'm, this is all outside my expertise. I just so t you, you're the people typing in the corner can take this for what it's worth. This is what we want. Original content. Um, you know, that's a treatment modality that the many in the medical community are slow to accept because they because it's a medical intervention as opposed to a, a talk intervention or a therapeutic intervention. But there's simply no question that, that not only has this been a f fiasco economically, but it's also been a fiasco in terms of the adversarial relationship it creates with law enforcement particularly now that's the last thing that we need now it, in the uk marijuana is not legal is it it is not legal and it's an absolute travesty when these politicians running the country have partaken in substances way stronger Correct. and they're absolutely you know just hypocritical to to maintain it where it is But your feds have still got it as a Schedule One substance, haven't they? More harmful than is it crystal meth and with no medicinal value whatsoever? Is it, I don't think it was a Schedule. No, I don't think it is. I don't. I'm. I'm not sure. Common sense. I'm. I'm really happy you're a member of Leap. I just spoke to the woman who ran that a few months ago about a project I was working on. But that's a really good organization in which. Uh, it encourages responsible reform of law enforcement. Um, and that's that's one of the main issues. Again, I can't speak to your country, but that's one of the main issues that's been on the left's um, agenda here, along with the utterly deranged idea of defunding the police, which is truly one of the stupidest ideas I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> yeah, mayor... Shout out to Neil Woods. Neil Woods, uh, I think he started the leap in the UK. He's an ex-cop and we've had him on a few times and he's doing fantastic work across Europe. It's it's interesting. The the mayor of Portland is a to be blunt, he's a public disgrace. He's almost single handedly destroyed the city. It's really rather remarkable accomplishment. Just as as a side note, I've had people come to me and say more than one that this could not possibly be negligence. He's got to be in some foreign powers. Well, we we bracket that for a second. But one of the things that he did was he uh, eliminated the gun reduction task force. Uh, and again, the, the person I'd like to recommend for your show is Matt Thornton. He's Conor McGregor's coach's coach. Um, he's a fifth degree black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and he trains law enforcement. And um, his work on on violence in Black Bloc and Antifa and BLM is phenomenal, like truly next level stuff. 
Um, but when you when you drill down in the, that data, you find some very very interesting interesting facts. Um, but just to bracket, should we be looking at the comments on the side? I don't. Are, are you looking? Are you doing that for for us? I'm doing that for you. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so back to the issue at hand. So so the the gun reduction task force, the mayor did away with it, and the reason the mayor did away with it, along with the, the city council, is because they claimed it was racist because they had more contact with law enforcement. So what do you think? All right, people on the side typing away there. What is? What do you think is the, let's see how long it would take, I'm gonna ask another question after this. How long is it gonna take your, your guests to figure this out? The gun reduction task force was eliminated because the mayor said that it was racist because it had disproportionate contact with African-Americans. What do you think happened? So did it get, it got implemented then and it got, it got it did, stopped, it, did it? Yep. It got stopped. And what do you think happened? This is Pro not a, a gotcha. It's not a, <laughs> it's not a trick question. So did crime, did crime increase after it was stopped? Correct. The, the murder rate went through the roof and particularly the murder rate of young African-Americans. So, so here's what's interesting to me weaving together the previous conversation. Um, so I had mentioned before that if an adult male is not present in the home, and I mentioned the criminogenic factors being uh, age and um, uh, whether or not one is a male or female, those terms are so problematic nowadays, but ma ma males are far more likely to have contact with the police. Have you ever in your life heard a single person make the argument, literally ever from anybody, that the police are biased against males. <laughs> have you? No. No, I haven't either. Okay, so the so the the police have more contacts with African Americans, but now we've crafted a narrative that the police have, um, the, the police have some kind of animus against African Americans. And if you drill down on the data, how many? So this is another question for the people typing away there. How many people? And again, it's probably an unfair question because it's this is United States, but how many African-Americans were killed, um, unarmed African-Americans were killed by the police in 2019? Now, when you ask that people, that question to people, again, I had no idea we could talk about any of this stuff, but when you ask that question to people, you would be astonished what the answer is. I asked my neighbor here, she said 22,500. Wow. So the, the answer is, is actually under 20 and it's between eight and 16, depending on how you parse, up, parse the data. So we have problems that people are simply not being honest about in this country, right? And, and we have narratives that have taken over for facts, but that's perfectly for 20, this, in the 20s, right? In the late teens, like that's what we do. We look, turn to our subjective experience. We, we privilege, you know, lived experience over everything and, you know, data, et cetera. Those are tools of, of oppression of the patriarchy. So we have created this problem ourselves. We have nobody to blame for ourselves. We have a bunch of lunatics running around claiming that their subjective experience trumps any kind of objective reality or way to know reality. And then everybody else defers to them. So we have nobody to blame but ourselves. Do you think that sometimes there's an accumulation of emotion you know, for example, what you're citing, going going back to like lynching and, and, and racism of the last century, and then you get like little trigger issues that open the floodgate, basically. 
Um, we, I think it's a complex combination of factors. I mean, that that's clearly one of them. But the way to do, we know what the way to deal with the situation is. In fact, another person from from your island, Helen Pluckrose, has written very eloquently about this in her the last two chapters of Cynical Theories. Probably my the the best thing that I've read in the last literally 20 a quarter century she talks about the importance of liberalism and liberal values and basic freedoms and we know how to solve these problems and we know the values that we we all share independent of religion or creed or skin color and we know the values to make the society more prosperous and and to make it more just and to make it more fair and we know for example in this country we have miranda rights like we we know that there are some some basic elements of civil society that we all have to abide by. And so somebody wrote about, you know, tossing the, t- tossing the statues, ripping the statues. I personally couldn't care less if, if the statues, I would kind of like some of the deer statues, but that, but the, the anarchists and the, the black bloc, the far left has ripped down the statues. Look, if you don't like the statues, this is the problem. We, we have also deferred to the juvenile rantings of a bunch of, of, of thugs in our cities. There are democratic ways and processes to take those statues down. You live in a democracy and you should play by the rules. So, of course, they'll tell you that the rules are inherently racist. But we have mechanisms and systems in place so that if you don't like statues, et cetera. Now, let's say that you you try and you're unsuccessful and you can't rip down the statues. I mean, you can't have that taken up. Run for office. Nothing is preventing anybody from running for office. In fact, the whole country, maybe at the upper, at the upper levels, you need to be be wealthy. But certainly in local office, nothing is preventing people from doing that. So if you don't have a certain statue, there are mechanisms. If you don't like it, there are mechanisms built into the city, the, into into the structure of governance that you can take those down. <clears throat> but we've kind of deferred to mob rule. But if I may, here's the crazy thing. If I said to somebody, <clears throat> excuse me. You know, t- often I, I lost my my mom and dad, but I often think, wow, if my dad was like an old-fashioned liberal and he were listening to this, he would be just mortified at what, what was happening to the country. If you said to somebody, you know, 10 years ago, hey, we got these people ripping stuff down in the city, assaulting people. Maybe they have a good reason to do it. Maybe they, they don't have a good reason to it to do it. What do you think should happen to them? Like, literally everybody would have said they should be given a trial, arrested, given a trial. And if they're found guilty, they should have some consequence. Maybe it's prison. Maybe it's, you know, repainting the stuff they've destroyed, whatever it is, depending on the severity. But now the narrative is anybody who thinks they should be arrested and put in jail are conservatives. So it's the narrative itself is flipped. No, they're not conservatives. They're just people who don't want the city to turn into a big cesspool. There are people who value basic law and order of not assaulting civilians walking down the street. But but again, the narrative is if somebody pushes back on that, well, then the system is racist. You're defending a racist system. The police are defending a racist system. Uh, all ACAB, I don't know if you have that over there, but all cops are bastards. You saying that and then somehow you are you, you are complicit in a racist systemic patriarchy. Do you think there's always going to be anomalies and inefficiencies in society because of the interests of the lobbyists? Um, yeah, I don't I don't think any of these problems are caused by law, lobbyists. I can tell you exactly where they're caused from without any equivocation or question whatsoever. They're caused from deranged ideologies that are untethered to reality that have 
seeped out of the academy because uh, my former colleagues were teaching people uh, um, things that were simply untrue. And they've done that for generations. And now the chickens have come home to roost. And now this is the fruits of it. This is critical race theory applied. This is race essentialism applied. This is dividing people intentionally on the basis of their race and calling it a virtue. This is weaponizing the word racism against everybody with whom you disagree. This is creating institutional mechanisms and weaponizing them to punish dissenters. This is the kind of civilization, this kind of society we've created. Can I, we've already got a few minutes left so on, on a lighter note. Can I ask you some silly uh, philosophical questions just based sure. on my rudimentary knowledge? Sure, sure. I didn't intend to speak and talk about that <laughs> <today>. <laughs> Who, which, which, uh, if you're going to reach for a philosophy book, which, which of the ancient philosophers would you, would you reach for? Oh, that's the easiest question in the world. Uh, Socrates, no question about it. Everybody should read. If, if I were kind of the czar of education, everybody would be reading Socrates. Plato, actually, but but reading the dialogues of Socrates. Did you find Aristotle quite dry then, in comparison? I, I did. I recognized the value of Aristotle. Uh, I liked his stuff on friendship and his in the ethics, but Socrates is really where it's at. I mean, the, someone else from your island there, Whitehead, said uh, all all uh, all of philosophy are just footnotes to Plato and Aristotle. <laughs> so I think Tolstoy wrote something like. The highest flight of wisdom is to admit that you know nothing. What would yeah, you? Yeah, well, I just saw. I just saw a comment. Someone said Socrates, the man who hated uh, democracy. It's about <laughs> the Socratic method. It's about ways to ask questions and engage people, and that's what Socrates has given us. That's timeless. You can disagree with some of those conclusions, but it's the it's the method of reasoning that he that were captured in those dialogues. That's just timeless. And I would argue to take the conversation to another level that would be essential for any spacefaring civilization to possess. There's something um, in reason and rationality that are, that are captured in those dialogues that are essential for human progress and flourishing. And they're so compelling as well. So Nietzsche, I think he wrote something like, what is life without music? Do you subscribe to that? And what music preferences do you have? Um, I like heavy metal. Um, I like very hard. I like Tool is my favorite band. Um, every once in a while, I'll, I'll um, if, if I had my own druthers when I go out to listen to stuff, I like to go to Irish bars and, and listen to Celtic music, but um, almost all the bars are closed here because of COVID. <laughs> what do you think of Kant's critique of pure reason? Boy, I haven't thought about that in a while. Um, <laughs> um, I think it has elements of merit. I've never understood why people would posit realms that they like the noumena and the phenomena of the noumena. Like I've never under, I've never understood some of it. I found Kant to be uh, clear in places. Uh, sometimes I would, um, particularly in graduate school, I would just marvel at the man's genius. Um, uh, yeah, I don't really think anything of it. I don't, I don't, I like philosophy that's practical and that helps people. That's what I'm drawn to. Yeah. That's what I was getting to next because Kant used a lot of, uh, Latin and, and hard to understand words. I can't remember the philosopher who said that if a philosopher is so bright, the common people should be able to understand what he's saying. Yeah. And the French tradition is horrible for that. Dan Dennett tells a story when he talked to Foucault about why his writing is so unclear and obscure. And Foucault said, you won't be taken seriously in French if people don't understand 25% of what you write. But there is, and another person from your island, my friend Richard Dawkins talks about 
the importance of clarity. And we, we, he, we've done a couple of events together and he just gives some lovely, it's just so lovely. We, so there's a kind of pretension. People think, oh, if I just write in this way or this way, people will think I'm smart. Well, fuck whether or not people think you're smart. Write something that people can understand. Write something because it's clear. Don't write something because you want to impress someone else. That's one of the follies of youth, I think, of, of when you're younger, it's probably more, many, many young people think it's more important to be perceived as, as being intelligent. But if you won't really want to be perceived as being intelligent, then write clearly. What do you think of existentialism and books like The Plague? Um, I have a very good friend of mine that's hardcore. Actually, he's written 40 books actually on it. Um, 40 with a four zero in, wow. in it. Wow. Um, <laughs> that's, that's a prison sentence right there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know, I know. Um, you know. I understand its value in, in you know, they say in philosophy, since you're asking me philosophy, subspecies eternitatis, like the, under the watchful eye of eternity. Like, I think it has a value. There is something about um, um, existentialism and a kind of a self-consciousness or self-awareness of our own existence and its, and its finitude. And I, and I think that um, I'm, not, I'm not sure how that moves the needle on ameliorating human suffering or, human flir and, or promoting human flourishing, but... Um, I, I'm, I'm actually, I'm neutral toward it. I, I think it has some value, but it's not my, it's not something of which I find myself interesting. Okay. With life affirmation, then human flourishing, let's go to the Stoics. I love, I love, uh, someone wrote the perfect circle. Yes. The perfect circle is another one of my, I should curate my, my playlist. I don't know who would want to see him and then post that, uh, post that here. What did you think of the portrayal of Marcus Aurelius in the beginning of the movie, the gladiator? Oh boy, that was a lot. That's another curveball question. I love The Gladiator. I thought that was a fantastic film. I like Russell Crowe. Uh, almost everything he's done, I'm amazed at what a versatile actor he is. Um, uh, I love that scene when he said he wants to die a soldier's death, and he basically kills those guys. Um, I cried yeah, when he had when they had his wife and his son strung up. I, I had tears in my eyes at that. Point. Yeah, it was a great movie. I'm I'm amazed. I mean, he's done some. So this is a far-reaching interview. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's done some. He's done some fantastic work. Yeah, I'd have to say, I love his stuff. Big fan. The Matrix. Well, I just saw the last Matrix. That that movie was an abortion. My God. <laughs> well, huge thank you, Peter. You've been an absolute riot. Glad that we got to cover some ground, some unusual ground. Because I've watched, you know, many of your other stuff, and I wanted to try and come at it at a different angle. Uh, really a privilege to have you on after watching oh, on Joe you. Rogan and, and, you know, how esteemed you are. And uh, if there's anything we can ever do for you, if you ever come to London, just, just give us a shout. Thank you. I appreciate that. I should be there. My son will be living there pretty soon and I, I should be there. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I'm a big fan of the pubs. So uh, <laughs> when I come, why don't you have email me and you have your assist, assistant. My, my assistant will get out and we'll, I'll take you out for drinks. Big fan. We'll take, you, we'll take you for some fish and chips and a pint of Guinness. Love that. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Sean. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks very much. Have a good evening. Cheers. Huge thank you for coming on, Bruce. No, you thank just, you for having me. Do you want to just tell people who are not familiar with your work what it is that you get up to? Yeah, sure. So I uh, delve into the world of performance psychology. 
um, help and goal over the world doing uh, creating high-performing teams within global organizations. Part of what I do, or the interesting part that seem to be on YouTube, is about the body language training that I've been delivering for 15 years. Um, I usually, you know, my aim is to help build psychological safety within team, you know, see what's not being said, trying to get the best out of people. But of course, on you know, on YouTube, Sean, what people are really interested in and who's lying or not. So that's what, you know, that's what I'm doing. That's where I met Brian. Obviously, you know, Brian through Jordy. Uh, I, go yeah. to, uh, I go on to Brian's live streams on the UFC and the boxing on a regular basis um, to give sort of psychological breakdowns about what's going on in the face-off, what's going on in the weigh-ins, what's going on in the press conferences. You know, is there anything that we can read from there that helps us to make a prediction from the fight? So overall, that's my YouTube history in 30 seconds there, Sean. Fantastic. And your links will be in the description box below this video. So I urge people to go down and support what Bruce is doing. So today we've got just under 30 minutes and we were going to talk about this Oprah interview, which has got everybody going crazy. <laughs> um, so what, what, what's your initial impressions from that? Well, I think, again, before we can get into the detail, I think it, it, it would be mindful, it would be really helpful. I know that I believe your previous guest has you know, talked about Marcus Aurelius and stoic mindset. And it's that is that, you know, we can't control the outside events, but it's our perception, Sean, of what we make of them that is within our gift to do. And that's so relevant for Meghan Markle, all right? It's the biases that we bring to this interview. It's the labels, the existing emotion, the feelings that we've already got, of which Meghan is, you know, let's be fair, a very evocative character. She is the ultimate, probably more extreme version than Piers Morgan of Marmite, all right? Some people absolutely <laughs> love her, some people absolutely detest her. And I think that actually stops people being able to see more of the data. Um, <laughs> me and True Geordie always have this banner about, Bruce, you're always obsessed with the data because the more we can see, the more fair and balanced then we can approach a particular subject and think, you know, a lot of people bring positive or negative. It's almost we're in tribes. If you look at anthropological history, Sean, you know, we always take sides. We're always in teams. And that's so prevalent with uh, Meghan Markle. So I think what would be fair is to say that with Megan, there's a lot of emotion. And if people can just, whoo, you know, a bit of woosa before they come to the table, that will allow them to see maybe more of the data, not positive or negative, just more of it to make a more form and fair and balanced opinion. Um, when I was speaking to Ash when he booked me to come on here, he asked me to look at some of the things that the behavior buddies or the, the uh, guys who you've had on previously um, were talking about some of the points there. You know, did I agree? Did I disagree? And one of the first things now, what I would say is I don't necessarily disagree, but I think one of the guys was incorrect in the way that he narrated his or, or, or he offered his opinions. And it's around about the first thing that Meghan Markle said right on to the interview is that I didn't Google the royal family. I didn't Google Prince Harry. I, you know, I, I sort of didn't know anything about it. And one of the guys, I think it was the English guy with the long hair, said, now, of course, that's false. Of course, she's lying. You know, you will Google the royal family now. I must, you know, question that because factually what, what, what's actually occurred here is when Meghan Markle says that she hasn't Googled the royal family, it sounds like bullshit, Sean, okay? It sounds like bullshit. But we don't know if she has or she hasn't. So to say that she's lying is factually incorrect. Look, I, lo I know loads of females, my daughter included, who, you know, she's away with the stars, with the fairies. She's looking at the butterflies. Like, I can actually picture my daughter not Googling something like that, all right? But the fact is, we don't know. But what didn't help Megal, uh, sorry, Megan, is it sounds like bullshit, all right? So when we hear that, all right, when we hear that, 
whether it's true or not, because it doesn't meet our own psychological expectations of what should be happening or what we think we would do in that particular situation, it doesn't help her cause. So straight away, because that was at the start of the interview, if you've brought that narrative, if you've brought that bias about Meghan Markle being, you know, a bitch, a narcissist, all this type of stuff, she gives you one thing and then we jump on that. Of course she's lying. There you go. That's all the proof that we needed. And then that follows it through all the way through that interview because we've got that narrative playing out. So do I think she, uh, you know, Googled Harry, the royal family? I'm not too sure. Does it sound like bullshit to me? Absolutely. But I'm also aware that that's just based on my own expectations of what I think I would do in that situation. So I don't think we can tell if she's been authentic or not. But what I do know is that our own preferences, our own expectations, um, and, you know, there's a lot of being reported in the newspapers, you know, they sort of picked up on that line and they've run with it. But when you sort of break it down in the way that I have, is like, it sounds bullshit, but we don't know if she's lying or not, but it definitely doesn't help her because it doesn't sound right. Does that make sense, Sean? Yeah, I mean, they're in a completely different world as well, aren't they? The people that move <laughs> at those levels. So the things that a normal person would expect another normal person to do perhaps don't apply. Would, would you say that there's some truth in that regarding her Googling? Yeah, sure. And... I would offer here that, you know, not only do they operate in different spheres and different activities the way that, you know, you or I may do, but also it comes down to that individual person. Now, the one thing that I would question about Megan is I do believe that she has got some narcissistic traits there. Okay, I would definitely say that. And what I would also offer um, is that having narcissistic traits isn't that bad. Now we associate, we label narciss, you know, narcissism, narcissistic traits as a bad person, as an evil person. And sure, you know, if that's really, really strong and you've got a number of examples where you, and depending on the strength of your narcissistic activities that you are displaying, sure, it can be really harmful. But you look in any organization, be it from a football team to a corporate organization, to you or I being on YouTube, you know, anybody who's achieving a relative uh, level of success must have some narcissistic traits in order to achieve that level of success. Does that make sense? Yeah, you probably, have to I'm actually pro do that. probably some psychopathic traits as well. <laughs> yeah, 100 percent. And, you know, it, it's the degrees in which it's uh, presented to itself. So I think here yeah, when people are saying Megan's a narcissist, well, you couldn't really. I don't believe there's enough evidence there to give her that uh, general title. I, you know, I don't believe that to be true. But I do believe it to be true that she has got some narcissistic qualities that, dis, you know, that she regularly displays. I done one body language video where she was getting interviewed. Uh, it wasn't the Oprah one. It was probably the interview before that. And um when the interviewer just calmly, and it wasn't, you know, she wasn't trying to rile Megan, she wasn't trying to make her feel uncomfortable or inferior, but there was a conversation going on and she mentioned that, you know, I can't believe they're treating you like this because you're not the only powerful woman in the conversation. Now, she was trying to be empathic. She was being quite kind. She was supporting her. But at that very moment where she offered to Megan that she's not the only powerful woman in this conversation, Megan didn't like that. You saw the reframing of the face. You saw the adrenaline dump where she shifted herself. You saw the, the sort of globus sensation, the adrenaline dump in the throat area there. So, yes, she has got some narcissistic qualities. 
but it's needed. Like, you know, she's got into the suit. She's an actress. She's, you know, she's married Prince Harry. Like there's got to be some type of calculation there. That just doesn't happen. <laughs> but also it would be fair because I always try to be fair and balanced on my channel to say that anybody who has achieved like that level of success, whatever that looks like in, you know, in different verticals and different areas must have some narcissistic traits as well. So for me, you know, it's not an evil thing, but we are noticing that she's definitely self-centered on certain occasions, that she's definitely uh, lacks empathy with certain decisions and she leaves family members behind. So she is, but I wouldn't class her, uh, you know, overall 100% as a narcissist, but, one, but, you know, in my opinion, she's definitely got those traits there, Sean. So earlier on then, you mentioned the emotional hotspots that surrounded the Oprah interview. And I think it was Pierce Morgan who said he could have scripted that himself, play the race card, play the mental health card. Do you think it was pre-calculated? Um, so the thing with body language, okay, if we get to the core about it, what we can do is we can look at when someone looks comfortable and when someone looks uncomfortable, all right? At that particular time when they look uncomfortable, that's where the questioning technique comes in. If your body language isn't lining up with what you would expect, and again, it's just a personal expectation at that particular time, if the behavioral trends, the patterns aren't there or they are there, then that's the moment where I'm going to start. Guess what you're going to talk about? You know, me and Ash were talking on the five points that we get. So it's, you know, it, it, it's highly probable that something on a nuclear scale, you know, global scale with the royal family, there's going to be debate, chaos, everything coming in here, that they would have known what they were going to talk about. So it's interesting, those two points here, you know, was Megan being truthful when she mentioned about um, the, the question, uh, if the baby is of colour, how would we deal with that? Because again, that's an issue we can come back to. But I thought Oprah was terrible. I thought she was, I thought she was diabolical. Um, host, I thought, you know, th th there, was, there was one question where she sort of challenged Megan. But it was almost if Megan was pulling her in. It was, if I can be honest, it was almost if Oprah was scared to do anything that would potentially jeopardize that interview. It was, you know, that there, the lack of questioning, the lack of interrogation, the lack of challenge, the, the lack of stop there, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to come from a different angle. When you notice how Oprah usually interviews, there was just none of that there apart from, you know, uh, I think there was one that says you are, um, you've been, you know, accused of being the sort of mastermind, sorry, mastermind behind Megxit. Like, that was it. In the full two hours, there was no challenge there. So I do think there was a lot of pre-planning. I do think, and I, you know, because Megan is calculated, and it's fine to say that we've all got that level of calculation in us, but because she has got the narcissistic traits, because she did want to be in control of that interview, there's just a, a higher probability, a higher probability that she actually give Oprah or the production, like, this is what we're going to talk about. This is what we're going to do. This is, you know, these are the topics and how I want this to come across. I believe that would have all been squared away and agreed, which is why we almost saw a mute Oprah, if that makes sense, Sean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're going to be sat in someone's backyard with Prince Harry, you're going to be told in advance softball this otherwise it ain't gonna happen yeah so again we don't know that but you know let's be fair there's a high probability with all that effort with all that money with all that concentration the fallout with the royal family is that they are definitely going to have crossed the t's and dotted their eyes sean at least that's what i believe plus to get the most watched 
interview in the world for this you know moment in time yeah. oprah's going to be thinking i want to do this again at some point with these guys i can't you know call them out on anything really so let's just go with the flow and, and you know get the viewership yeah, for, for sure. And, uh, you know, and, and we've all got that self-preservation mechanism in us, you know, that, okay, if something could uh, come up in the future that may help us, we will try and cuddle that. We will try and protect that. We will try and do it. So, you know, we may push some buttons, but we still deliver that psychological safety that we can actually meet with them in the future. And they will give us something. That's what we're looking from a relationship. What can I get from them? What could they get from me? So, yeah, but it was like she was muted. She was straight jacket. She, she, she wasn't questioning. She wasn't. I thought, you know, it was a terrible, terrible job by Oprah in that interview, Sean. So um, you believe that Oprah was the worst person in that entire interview? Oh, she, she was disgusting. She was terrible. She was, you know, she was she, she, she was mute. She was everything an interviewer shouldn't have been. She was everything an interviewer shouldn't. You know, and I've described this on a few of my videos is that you've almost got the spectrum that is bookended by, imagine if Piers Morgan was interviewing Meghan and Harry, yet Piers would be over here. <laughs> the exact opposite is what happened with Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> like, literally, that is the full spectrum bookended by Piers over here and Oprah Winfrey over here, Sean. <laughs> Do you think the whole Piers thing is calculated, them, his resignation, just to uh, a, career, oh. a career move? Because... He's going to be probably, you know, it just put him to the top of the fame for that. He kind of like hijacked the fame of the interview by getting kicked off his own show. Yeah, he did. And so I don't think that was planned. Again, I would say Piers has just as many narcissistic traits as Megan. That's probably why the clash, because they've got a lack of empathy for each other. <laughs> you know, they really don't care about each other's feelings, which is when Piers says stuff. And, you know, actually, when you remove the wheat from the chaff in regards to Pierre. She's actually got some valid claims. Like what well, she said this, she said that. Uh, she hasn't got any evidence for this. And I feel like this way about her. Okay. So once you take the emotion away from Pierre, it's like he has got some valid claims, I believe, that on the data that I've got, I would say, yeah, I can see where he's coming from. But I do believe that Piers, he didn't plan on doing that. It was just he drove into a situation because Piers is a, he's a dopamine fiend. He loves the attention. He loves the adoration. A little bit like Tyson Fury. Yeah, he loves to entertain. He loves the crowd and all this type of stuff. So when he felt maybe it's the crowd going against him, because remember, Piers has just got a head and a heart. He's exactly like you and I, Sean. He can be hurt. He can be wounded. But also, if he felt the crowd turning against him, that might have been just enough. Because it's been going on for a while now, um, and you had the weather presenter going against him as well, and it was, you know, it, it, it was going in hard. That everybody's got a breaking point. Everybody thinks, you know what? Like I am just sick of this, whatever this means to them. And we saw Piers walk off. So I don't think it was planned, but it was bloody effective and entertaining, Sean. <laughs> and what do you think about Megan Kelly egging him on? Oh, you, you, you know, I, I, I think so. Overall, I think a lot of, in fact, if we just focus on Piers, is that Piers um, loves an argument when he is in control. Does that make sense? Yeah. So he will bait people. He will um, entice people. And we've seen it. I actually think he's done a very good job um, during the government lockdown, you know, the, the pandemic holding people to account. Uh, and he's brutal. He's brutal. It, it, if you don't give Piers the answer that he is after, 
um, then you know that can it it, it it makes good TV. It makes good TV. Even me, well, I can understand the psychological manipulation and stuff, or at least more of it than probably the average person on the street. I still enjoy it as well. But you know, when he's been egged on, or, or even when he's been challenged, I don't think it really bothers him that much, because this is the narcissistic trait that we see in peers. He's like, he's got that much confidence in himself. Maybe he's overconfidence. Maybe he's arrogance. I, I would definitely say that there is a, there is a, a brushstroke of arrogance that quotes Piers's um, behaviors. But when you see him, he doesn't need any encouragement or any challenge because... Prince Andrew. Yeah, sure. So I think with the Oprah interview, one of the biggest things was about um, the question where... Megan offered to do if the baby is of colour, how will we handle it, etc. And that was picked up by, by the newspapers as well. Now, what I believe is that Megan, to be authentic... You can see how stuffy it is. You've got the Nazi origins. You've got... <laughs> to, 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 yeah, for sure. Expect there to be no racism there. <laughs> just prepared to explore... Has there been some racism there rather than just cutting it off? And again, I think that's a more fair and balanced approach to take. At least be curious to the point where then you know there may not have been, but there also may have been as well, Sean. So, all right, we've got about five minutes then. It's probably not enough time to cover Prince Andrew, but what's your take on Prince Andrew's situation, his body language in the, the BBC car crash interview, etc.? Yeah, so I thought, now that was an example. I can't remember the interviewer, um, the lady's name. Emily that, Ma- Maitlis. Is it, is it Emily Maitlis? Is it? Well, she done yeah. a really good job. She done a really good job. She probed, she pushed. She set off that amygdala type reaction, that flight or fight reaction. And again, there was just, I mean, <laughs> if you had to, if I had to give, obviously I teach body language all over the world. And if I had to take an example, all right, of when somebody, is having the most horrid, torrid, um, you know, just inaccurate time within body language, that non-congruence, non, you know, uh, uh, non-verbal communication, then that would be it. That is like, there is no better example than <laughs> Prince Andrew getting grilled uh, by that interviewer. So, the, you know, there was, I, I can't even remember how many examples of when Prince Andrew looked really uncomfortable. Yeah. And bless him, he thought, and I'm sure they've prepared this, you know, you wouldn't put a, a prince in front of an interview without preparing that. But that's the beautiful thing with body language, is that when you come under an interviewer's scope, a, a lens as we call it, when we put the spotlight on you and we start asking you questions, your body will react autonomously. It doesn't matter how much you practice, even if you're the world's best actor or actress, is that your body in a split second reacts that limbic system, the honest part of the brain. And that's what we saw with Prince Andrew. You know, the rubbing of the hands, the protection of the neck, even the globus sensation. And that, that was brilliant when he tried to say the word legal. She asked him a question about, would you go in front of a jury if you had to? And he, he, he tried to get out, you know, if that is the legal. And the moment he said the word legal, because he's amygdala fired, he got the globus sensation. That's what he himself going to jail, the handcuffs sitting in the cell. That's why we got that globus sensation on the... Right. Yeah, sure. So I, I'm based up in Newcastle, but I travel all over the world, Sean. So Newcastle is my home base, but I tend to travel for, uh, uh, for, for my main job in the corporate world and also YouTube stuff as well. Yeah, we, well, I film out of Liverpool, filming out of Liverpool here soon. Oh, that's so far away. Absolutely. I'll come down, buddy. Yeah, yeah. Let's get something on the calendar. Apologies to the viewers then. We've been hit with some crazy shit going on tonight. Buffering, 
got kicked off once. Check my internet speed. My internet speed is off the scale, so it's, it's not at this end. Perhaps we're under some kind of attack. They don't want this information. <laughs> they do. We're, we're being watched. We've got to shut them down. There's too much energy going back and forth here, Sean. Yeah. Kill the channel. <laughs> and, and you've done a lot with True Geordie then. Yeah, yeah, really good. But I, I, I cannot tell you a big shout out to True Geordie, but behavioral psychology in the corporate world. I got on the train, I thought, that's that True Geordie guy. Now, I've never met him before, Sean, like, at that point. But I, I was talking. Not the internet at my end. I'm flabbergasted that this has happened this evening, but we are about to move over to Patreon anyway now, and <laughs> I'm just reading the comments. People all over the world are being buffered. Now, that should not be happening on a live stream of this uh, size, on a channel of this size, with the internet speed we've got. We've got everything in place, so this does not happen. For this to be buffering all over the world, there is some kind of attack in progress. <laughs> and I'm, it, 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 I'm, I'm kind of finding it a little bit funny, but a bit, bit sad that it's, it's kept a lot of people from jumping on properly tonight. 